All those who are holding tickets outside will get in as fast as they can. I'm speaking not to you, ladies and gentlemen. I'm speaking to the crowd on the outside who seem to be standing rather reluctant to come in, and we're going to start this very soon. Welcome to Worthy. I'm Ben. And I'm John. And on this episode, we are talking about the 1971 Best Picture winner, The French Connection, starring Gene Hackman. Just want to start off by saying that me and John actually got to watch the movie together in a theater, which is the first time in a very long time. And the only time, actually, no, we did get to watch one Best Picture winner together in a theater. We got to see The Godfather, but that that's separate. We got to watch this one as we were like doing like this project, and it was like for this episode, so... That was just a great experience. I think that added to my excitement and you know my interest in wanting to talk about this more than the first time I watched the movie. And then, John, we got some really interesting news almost like a week after seeing it based off of some interesting censorship over the film. So why don't you tell the audience what happened with The French Connection? So perceptive audiences noticed that some stealth edits were made to the 1971 classic The French Connection, which is now owned by Disney after they acquired Fox, which is now 20th Century Fox. And people noticed this as it was streamed on internationally on Disney, Disney, but specifically they noticed this on the Criterion channel. Someone had gone in and deleted six seconds of an exchange between our two protagonist detectives, Jimmy Popeye Doyle and Buddy Cloudy Russo which the scene contains racial slurs, but for context, we're going to play it here so you understand what has been cut. You dumb guinea. How the hell did I know he had a knife? Never trust a nigger. He could have been white. Never trust anyone. And now, to kind of help us further break this down and analyze not only how big of a deal this is in terms of censorship and censoring a Best Picture winner, I found a great article by Thomas Chatterton Williams from The Atlantic who kind of helps us break this down. Quote, Instances of such cleansing are becoming more frequent and blatant. The Roald Dahl estate unleashed hundreds of clumsy alterations to his classic work of children's literature, effacing words such as fat and ugly. These cases demonstrate a fundamental misunderstanding not only what is unjustifiably offensive of the very purpose of art. James Baldwin famously argued that not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it is faced. Exomatically, a history of racism that is not preserved cannot be faced. The people and the institutions who attempt to wash away all past ugliness and condescending to audiences, society is duty-bound to remember certain ideas and experiences, attitudes, and perversions. In a documentary on the making of the project, Roy Scheider recalled that black audiences in Harlem had expressed satisfaction when Hackman uttered the now-censored dialogue on the big screen. Finally, a reality they knew to exist was being acknowledged, a bittersweet confirmation of a painful existence. Today, the patronizing assumption we make to our detriment is that they wouldn't be able to handle it. So, since this is such a hot topic and such an important thing in terms of like censoring and banning anything from a film, and especially a Best Picture winner that we have now landed on, it is a huge deal, and especially not only because it's owned by Disney, it's, we kind of look at Disney as being the one who've made the changes, but Criterion, who's kind of worshipped film and cinema and has been a voice for preserving cinema, you know, they're hosting an edited film without any sort of clarity or confirmation of why the film is edited. So through some digging, there hasn't really been an official you know, release from them, Criterion specifically, describing what has happened, why it's been changed. But a user wrote to Criterion and asked specifically, 
why these changes have been made and what is this version of the film that they're currently watching and they currently have listed on their platform. And Criterion respond by saying this, We do not censor any content presented on the Criterion channel, though in some instances we include a content warning in the description of select films. We also frequently present films in the director's cuts and other alternate versions as their makers and licensors may require. The French Connection is a 20th Century Fox film title that we have under-licensed from Disney, its current owners. This is the only version that has ever been available to us for streaming. The question you raise has come up when we have played the film in the past, and according to the licensor, this is a, quote, director's edit of the film. William Friedkin has not publicly commented on this director's edit, and there's no other edits made in this specific director's cut. Five groups dedicated to cinema and its preservation similarly ignored queries on the subject, including one founded by the legendary director Martin Scorsese from the Film Foundation. So all that being said, this brings up a huge question and a huge question on censorship and really the morality when it comes to editing a film, especially without any sort of explanation or any kind of reasoning. And you can see by Criterion's response here that they're basically saying, hey, don't look at us. You know, we acquire rights to films to be able to stream, to put on our platform. Look at 20th Century Fox or more specifically Disney. Why did they make this change? So, Ben, with that all being said, I'm curious just right away. What are your opinions? Why do you think they cut this out? And how do you feel about it? it makes my stomach turn a little bit. You know, I don't I think censorship is kind of the wrong take to some things. I think talking it out learning about the context, learning about the film, the filmmakers, everything and the intent to going into that moment, that decision, I think is what needs to be studied. I'm very critical of older films from the 30s and 40s. We talked a lot about Cimarron in one of our, in our, one of our very early episodes and how I just bashed the racism in that movie because the intent was not to like depict something accurately with the artistic idea behind it. It was for comedy. It was to hurt it was because a white white people were able to do that to black filmmakers. In this instance, the filmmaker's choice, William Friedkin, was to depict reality, to create. And we we you know we have it in our notes. We're going to talk about realism within this movie and that genre of it. And he wanted to be authentic. And we both were watching a series that Friedkin did with the Academy from seven years ago, and he talks a lot about how. Everything that he did was for the movie and for cinema to being authentic to that because it felt right within the moment. And he talks about specifically the the basis of the character of of Gene Hackman's character and that he believes that that cop not only wasn't a racist himself, but was putting on this act because he knew that a cop in New York City to almost get his way sometimes had to be this racist, you know, obtuse, humongous figure to figure to crack a case and get down to it now i'm not condoning those behaviors but that was the accuracy that friedkin and the other filmmakers on the on the movie were trying to depict and to censor that six seconds of it does nothing like what does that really do it just takes away the authenticity and it takes art and it ruins it in many ways it takes art and that was meant to be real and it and it puts this like plastic film over it that says nope this is corporation this because clearly is disney doing this is like we've heard of many instances of disney especially on disney plus reworking stuff taking stuff that may have been slightly inappropriate out covering in different ways and i'm not surprised that they would have done this but it sucks because it's not appropriate and one of the direct things that i know i can like combat that is that whenever we we've been recording 
maybe over the last like 20 episodes, I've had the movie playing next to me as we've recorded. This is like the first movie in I, maybe a year that I'm not watching it while we're talking about the movie because I'm refusing to stream it on any platform it's available on and I'm refusing to buy it from iTunes because I don't know if that's the actual film itself. I don't want to spend my money, whether it's renting or buying a copy of it, if it's going to be censored. That's not what I want as a filmmaker, as someone who appreciates film and wants to talk about it. I think this is completely wrong. I think that you have to look at literature, you have to look at films, you have to look at art that is hard, that is not meant to be casually looked at and and use that to historically context what was going on. It sucks to look back on some of the awful parts of society, but that's how you need to learn and grow from it, not to hide it, because this is hiding it. This This isn't helping anybody by censoring out the six seconds. It's hiding art for no real reason at all, because you don't want a PR storm against you because somewhat might be offended by it, which they probably wouldn't be because they would realize it's a movie from 1971. Of course, it wouldn't be the woke that we know of today. Yeah, I think that's really well said. I think even when you look at Freakin's interview with the Academy from seven years ago, with held and hosted by Chris McQuarrie from the Mission Impossible fame, which was just an amazing thing to see those two incredible filmmakers together, but you can see him describe this character. And even if you want to look at it the way he does, who Ben described, you know, this character of Popeye, this detective who's wearing this kind of like coat of armor in order to protect himself and and be this other character. And you can almost see that in the film when he gets broken down. And I think we can describe that more when we go through the plot. But even if you were to look at this character and be like, no, he is just a racist, racist detective. But obviously the intent of this film, and I love that you brought it back to Cimarron, is not to poke fun. Like The actual script, the context of the film is not to be racist, but it's just to try to find a, a sense of realism. Something that's so accurate to what the time was and what these characters were. So I just don't see any sort of explanation. Like I said, there's no other edit in this film to call it a director's edit. It's not like he cut down you know, a couple other scenes to make the pacing a little snappier. No other scene has been cut. So clearly this is such a motivated act to kind of remove this entirely which is odd because I think there's other moments in this film as well where there's explicit language and that also could be like found offensive it's really confusing because when you look at Disney and this might be the separation between the countries and and the different you know teams running Disney where you'll see that the UK version of Disney plus is actually hosting the original version unedited version so disney is hosting it on their own platform completely unedited but this is the uk version so you need a vpn being in the united states to even watch it yet their version that they've licensed out for the criterion channel is the alternate edited version so it's it's very odd even from that angle where it's like why is this company doing one thing here domestically completely doing something else not it feels very targeted to the american audience like we can't even handle it and i think that's why i really wanted to grab from that atlantic article because he quotes from james baldwin an an incredible black author who's really kind of shaped our modern lives in terms of racism and race and and kind of educating your kids I just thought it was a perfect way to describe it. Not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it is faced. And then comparing that to the reaction that the audience has had, you know, it's a sense of 
relief almost to see something so realistic to see something that they've probably experienced and i mean black americans have experienced throughout their entire lives you know especially living in a big city like new york where they're kind of have a target on their back so this is just such complicated kind of material and i think we both agree that like nothing should ever be censored it's really important i've seen people even compare this to like book burning and which i think is a little extreme it's not like they're trying to erase the film from history but they're doing something in order to alternate and change what is history so it's it's very disturbing i think we both agree on that we both wish this didn't happen we hope that we actually get a better confirmation of what this is how did this happen but ben is there anything else you want to hit on about the censorship of the french connection yeah i actually in, so you were talking just kept using that word editing and then it just popped in my head this movie won for best film editing yeah. gerald greenberg won for best editing and you're not going to say that his work, his editing was, is not good enough. That 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 it needs to be censored. That he couldn't have made that choice himself to go back to the directors. Again, this is multiple people are part of this process, and everyone was in in agreement on it. And also, just to give some more context, Freakin had more of a documentary background. He wanted to go into this movie like a documentary. He hired documentary cinematographers to work on this movie, and again, like the the sense of realism that even the editor like now you're gonna say his work is not good like just it just bothers me like this is where the levels that it goes down to it's not just a simple and it should never just be a simple well let's wipe it clean let's just wipe it clean and forget about it that you don't forget about it you use you know you bury the past by discussing it and learning about it and I don't know. It's not commiserating. What's the another word for commiserating? It's not a happy thinking about it, but you're just gathered around talking about it, and that's what's important to itself. So, I think there's a lot more we get to say about this movie and 1971 in general. So, John, I gotta ask that question: Is the French Connection worthy of the Best Picture Award of 1971? The French Connection A pair of NYPD detectives in a narcotics bureau stumble onto a heroin smuggling ring based in Marseille, but stopping them and capturing their leaders proves an elusive goal. In Marseille, a police detective follows Elaine Charnay who runs a large heroin smuggling syndicate. The policeman is murdered by Charnay's hitman, Pierre Nicoli. Charnay plans to smuggle $32 million worth of heroin into the United States by hiding it in the car of his unsuspecting friend, television personality, Henry DeVroe, who is traveling to New York by ship. In New York City, detectives Jimmy Popeye Doyle and Buddy Cloudy Russo go out for drinks at the Copacabana. Popeye notices Salvatore Salboca and his young wife Angie entertaining mobsters involved in narcotics. They tell the couple and establish a link between the Bocas and lawyer Joel Weinstock, a major buyer in the narcotics world. Popeye learns that a massive shipment of heroin will arrive within two weeks. The detectives convince their supervisor to wiretap the Boca's phones. Popeye and Cloudy are joined by federal agents Moldering and Klein. Devereaux's vehicle arrives in New York City. Boca is anxious to make the purchase while the Weinstock urges patience, knowing they are being surveilled. Charnay realizes he is also being tailed by Popeye and escapes on a departing subway shuttle at Grand Central Station. To shake his tail, he has Boca meet him in Washington, D.C., where Boca asks for a delay to avoid the police. Charnay is impatient and wants to conclude the deal quickly. 
On the flight back to New York City, Nicoli offers to kill Popeye, but Charnay objects, knowing that Popeye would be replaced by another policeman. Nicoli insists, however, saying they will be back in France before a replacement is assigned. Soon after, Nikolai attempts to shoot Popeye but misses. Popeye chases Nikolai who boards an elevated train. Popeye shouts to a policeman on the train to stop Nikolai and then commands a passenger car. He gives chase, accidentally crashing into several vehicles on his way. Realizing he's being pursued, Nikolai works his way forward through the carriages, shoots the pursuing policeman who tries to intervene and hijacks the motorman at gunpoint. He forces him to drive straight through the next station and shoots the train conductor. The motorman passes out and they are just about to slam into a stationary train when an emergency trackside brake engages, hurling the assassin violently to the floor. A battered Popeye arrives to see the killer descending from the platform. Nikolai sees Popeye and turns to run, but is shot dead. After a lengthy stakeout, Popeye impounds Devro's Lincoln. In a police garage, he and his team tear the car apart piece by piece, searching for the drugs but seemingly come up empty-handed. Then, Cloudy notes that the vehicle's shipping weight is 120 pounds over its listed manufacturer's weight, indicating that the contraband must still be in the car. Further search reveals heroin packages hidden inside the rocker panels. The police reassemble and return the car to Devro, who delivers it to Charnay. Charnay drives to an old factory on Ward's Island to meet Weinstock and delivers the drugs. After Charnay has the rocker panel covers removed, Weinstock's chemist tests one of the bags and confirms its quality. Charnay removes the drugs and hides the money, concealing it inside the rocker panels of another car purchased at an auction of junk cars, which he will take back to France. Charnay and Sal drive off in the Lincoln, but hit a roadblock with a large contingent of police led by Popeye. The police chase the Lincoln back to the factory where Boca is killed during a shootout while most of the other criminals surrender. Charnay escapes into a nearby warehouse with Popeye and Cloudy in pursuit. Popeye sees a shadowy figure in the distance and opens fire too late to heed a warning, killing Muldrig. Undaunted, Popeye tells Cloudy that he will get Charnay. After reloading his gun, Popeye runs into the another room and a single shot is heard. Title cards describe the fate of various characters. Weinstock was indicted, but his case was dismissed for lack of proper evidence. Angie Boca received a suspended sentence for an unspecified misdemeanor. Lou Boca, Sal's brother and accessory to the handoff, received a reduced sentence. Devereaux served four years in a federal penitentiary for conspiracy and Charnay was never caught. Popeye and Cloudy were transferred out of the narcotics division and reassigned. The French Connection was directed by William Friedkin. Written by Ernest Tiedemann, based on a book by Robin Moore. Produced by Philip D'Antoni. Music by Don Ellis. Cinematography by Owen Roisman. Editing by Gerald B. Greenberg. Art direction by Ben Kazako. And costume design by Joseph Fretwell III. The French Connection starred Gene Hackman as Jimmy Popeye Doyle. Fernando Ray as Elaine Chardonnay. Roy Scheider as Buddy Russo. Tony Lobianco as Sal Boca. Marcel Bazuffi as Pierre Nicolai. Frederic de Pasquale as Henry Devereaux. Bill Hickman as Agent Bill Moldering. And Rabat as Marie Charnay. Harold Gary as Joel Weinstock. Arlene Farber as Angie Boca. Eddie Egan as Captain Walt Simonson. And Irving Abrahams as the police mechanic. 
our opening description here is interesting where it describes, you know, it almost like jumps in. It kind of describes the opening, but I want to jump in right off the top and, and talk about this opening scene in the film where we're in France right away and you're like, hmm, what is going on here? You're seeing like everyday life. You're seeing this man just, you know, he's getting his baguette. You know, he's doing very French things. <laughs> he's strumming the streets. And then all of a sudden, boom, in an alley. You know, he doesn't even get like a word off. He immediately just gets gunned down. And what I would say is an extremely graphic way, a way of someone getting shot that we probably haven't really seen, I would say, up until this point in terms of Best Picture winners, in a very graphic, realistic way where, boom, one shot knocks him out. You see a little bit of blood, and then the man kind of goes about his way. So, one, I just want to get your thoughts of, like, jumping into the film this way, seeing this, like, jump into this kind of, interesting cinema verte style from French New Wave that we've kind of heard about but we haven't really seen too much maybe hints of in Midnight Cowboy maybe a little bit in in the heat of the night from 1967 but it's not really until now in 1971 where we see this like very expressive realism that's drawing from French cinema and yeah I'm curious what you think of this opening this kind of visceral day in the life until boom bam the gunshot so I was like just starting to think of like have we talked about gunshot and one that popped in my head was in Gone with the Wind when Scarlet shoots the guy right in the face and it's like that quick cut and oh. it's like the red the red paint. Yes. And we talked about that was like, whoa, what was that? <laughs> that was unexpected. And yeah, this this too is like very unexpected. I guess the second time going into it, I I knew like the the whole setup. And I'm still that we read the whole intro, we read like the whole description. I didn't it was hard for me to understand that that was a detective that was like onto them. Like to, it just maybe that didn't click for me because the conversation, the dialogue is really them between Charnay and, and his, I guess his girlfriend or his wife. And it's more like their interaction, like, Oh, we're going to go to America and like how great that is. So it's really hard to see like the connection a little bit because they kind of then go right into how are we going to plot to move this heroine into the U S but yeah, you're right. It, it does definitely start, starts off a literal bang which the movie kind of ends on a literal bang and and it the french new wave like realism i think plays perfectly into well now what are we going to see in the new york realism and and that's very much like we were saying before in the cold open that friedkin was building this like realistic way this documentary style of showing new york city in 1970 71 when they were filming the movie so i i think it's a great opening and it, and it level sets and thematically stylistically is a great comparison between france marseille and, and new york city yeah no it's a great way to kind of introduce us i've even seen film theorists talk about how this film is almost like an example or a demonstration of how french cinema has inspired american cinema and especially moving into the 70s where we get into these you know auteur driven very stylized films and I've seen people even describe this film as that demonstration almost. You know, the French are invading, coming into the U.S. I think personally it's kind of a reach. This is a film based on a true story, based on a true crime. And it's hard to kind of make that assumption. But, you know, that's film theory. That's what they're here for. They're here to overanalyze and well, make and relate to everything, to, to everything. But, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, no, but I was going to say, like, but Friedkin does say himself how influenced he is by Jean-Luc Godard. And he used the in the and again going back to the academy conversation that he had, he, I think he said the book came at like well after the fact that Godard had written this term everything is cinema, and that that he said like that was how I went into this movie was that idea of like again everything is cinema 
So I think there is some of that relation there. So I can definitely understand like where the idea comes from. Now, is it exactly French New Wave? No, it is not. It is a dark and gritty movie. And I, and that's kind of the fun of it. And I kind of want to pose that to you now because we've we've always talked about that analogy of like getting off the train at our grandparents, great grandparents, our parents, Hollywood. And growing up, I remember and feel like there was so much conversation about movies being too violent, movies being too over the top with the violence. And I wonder if a movie like The French Connection, I don't know if it was the doorway, but it could definitely be a catalyst for why a movie like that was so popular. And again, like we go into the next, in 72, it's The Godfather, and then it's The Sting, and then it's The Godfather Part Two. So there starts to be this very realistic and grit added to Hollywood that I think, you know, didn't just come out of nowhere, but it's very interesting that it would pop out like right here. So I want to get your thoughts on violence, realism, Hollywood, this like new age Hollywood being very violent. Yeah, it's so interesting because I think this film is almost like a a mixture, like it taking all these different elements. Like he's taking obviously the inspiration from the cinematography, from French New Wave. I think he drew from the film called Z, if I remember correctly. But he, you can see it all throughout the film how he's kind of inspired by French New Wave in terms of the cinematography. But like you said, I don't really think of like the sense of like gritty, dirty realism when I think of French New Wave. It's almost like the opposite. It's like heightened and elevated in a way. Maybe that's because I haven't seen enough French New Wave films. I've probably seen like three or four. And maybe there's some more that are more gritty and more grounded. But it almost feels like that is kind of an American sentiment, especially with the whole film being based in such a gritty kind of gross location that is the 70s New York City. But I think you're absolutely right. It it does feel like a mixture of so many different things where you have, you know, that French New Wave, you have the American sense to it as well. And then you have the violence that we, we do see and continue to be explored. I think we get hints of that even in Midnight Cowboy where we see like the violence that they have in terms of like the very up close kind of like abuse scenes where he's fighting with the man and even in the heat of the night, there is some some kind of violent aspects to it as well. So we're like slowly, I think, evolving in terms of these best picture winners, the violence that we see. I mean, you could even go as far, 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 far back and look at, you know, All Quiet on the Western Front as being like one of those pre-code era films as extremely violent. And then from that point on, we kind of lose most of that violence. It becomes more melodramas, you know, more personal dramas. And we kind of lose that sense of, of even having a reason for violence. And this is the perfect example. I mean, the best thing to compare this film to is probably in the heat of the night because it's about two cops. Here's two detectives. You know, it that's more of like a fish out of water story with in the heat of the night, you know, a black detective from Philadelphia coming against a Southern white detective. So it's a little different. The French connection is more fueled on, on this partnership that these two detectives have But yeah, I really think that sense of violence really comes down to the sense of realism. They wanted it to feel like a real gunshot, like a real, you know, bang when you fall to the ground and get hit. You know, there's not, I think the opening is a great way to explain that where in so many of the films that we've seen so far, you would expect that the guy, the villains pointing the gun at who is what you would expect our protagonist at this point, because it's the first couple minutes. And you would expect the protagonist to say something like, you know, a some sort of catchy cool line something that is like classic hollywood cinema but nothing he doesn't even get a chance to say anything and just gets gunned down immediately so 
the film is already trying to like subvert expectations when it comes to what Hollywood expects. I think that's a perfect example. But in the same way, the opening almost feels like a Bond opening, right? Where we're like following this person, there's tailing going on. You're like, oh, who's the good guy? Who's the bad guy? What's happening? And then boom, you're hit on the head. No, like that person didn't even matter. That's just to like set up our villain to really show how bad he is, which reminded me a lot of Bond. And we have Bond kind of rising in the 60s which then leads to now where we are in the early 70s. So the movie does feel like it's kind of grabbing from this and that and creating it this like new style of what we kind of expect from the 70s. Yeah, and I, I kind of want to maybe ex- ex- extrapolate that and, and build on that idea because a movie that I watched almost like right after this movie when we saw it was American Gangster, Ridley Scott's American Gangster, which came out in 2007. And you wonder, like, why am I bringing that movie up? Well, in that movie, they actually make a direct reference to what happens in the French Connection. They make reference to this big drug bust and how that kind of, like, left this whole, like, landscape of New York drug underworld open for Denzel Washington's character to step in and start creating his own heroin business. But that realism, that that authenticity that, that I would say Scott was going for in the movie really makes that go. And so it's... You know, it's interesting that we bring it up and wonder, like, is this real? Is this not real? And I would say, like, the grit and what we're seeing in this movie is very real. And, and, I, and I thought it was interesting to see that through line exists almost 40 years later between these, you know, when those two movies were made and, how, and the subject matter they're a part of is so similar. Yeah, yet so far removed probably from the style of it, right? Like, I, I've never seen that film, but I've heard it's, like, extremely stylistic, oh, okay. but in, in a very different oh, way, you would, I imagine. You would love – I would I would implore a lot of people to go to that movie, but that that's a great movie, and, and it has a really good cop. And not – well, he's not – they're not really robbers, but, that again, that cop and robber. I thought that this movie with the French Connection, I thought there was a lot of – that comic strip spy versus spy aspect to it. There's a lot of Tom and Jerry. Definitely. there, And literally in one scene, there is definitely a lot of hijinks going on, which I think we can talk about between Gene Hackman's character and, and, and Elaine Charnay. So I want to talk more about the movie and get into the details, but there, there's one more aspect that I think makes this movie really unique to us. And this conversation is where it was filmed and it was filmed in New York city. And, you know, people are like, well, a lot of films are made in New York City. There, this movie was made in the neighborhood that me and John, when John was a New Yorker, it was the direct area that we were essentially living in. There is, on I, I mapped it out. Point eight miles away from me is where one of the locations were. I'm not going to say so no one can like look up where potentially that is. <laughs> but point eight miles from me, I've walked. I can walk to it right now. It took me ten minutes. They filmed the French Connection right down the road, which is awesome. I I love that that this part of the city was filmed and and that they dared and again that's again Freed the size of Friedkin's balls to go into this part of Brooklyn in New York City, which was not a safe area. Like to go in there and make a movie, I don't care who's the star of it. You know that's insane that you're gonna go and do that. So John, your thoughts on this movie being? almost like a whole movie for us in some ways it is so bizarre especially this very specific scene which i kind of labeled as the bar shakedown essentially a scene where our two detectives you know they're probably doing their like weekly routine which is like they always hit a certain couple bars they know that there's drugs kind of being exchanged here they know that a lot of drug dealers hang at this bar so they kind of just starts with them walking down the street 
And I, you know, a lot of this movie feels really familiar after living in Brooklyn and specifically Bushwick for like five years. A lot of it feels familiar. The above ground subway, the walking under that above ground subway, the, the seedy bars all around, you know, some of it felt really familiar, but it wasn't until you said do you realize like where this location is? So I've like gone back and rewatched it a bunch of times on YouTube. And yeah, I mean, Ben described it almost a mile away. I lived about like a block from where this scene took place. I was like a block away, a little bit further away from this location. But what's so interesting is that you see them walking in. You can like see the subway where I used to walk and go to work every single day. It looks similar to a degree, but obviously it's very different. You have older signs from the 70s that it's not a bar anymore. In fact, what's so interesting and so bizarre, I don't know if you realize this. This is the best part. Of, this oh, is I the best what part. Say. So what the location is now, it is a CD bar in terms of the French Connection, but in whenever this was established, I'm assuming probably in the last 10 years, that location now is a Popeye's. And it is a fried chicken establishment that is called Popeyes, and the craziest thing is that our character nickname is literally Popeye. What are the odds of that happening? There's no way that is connected, right? There's no way. No, it is connected. I thought you were going to say it, but you didn't say it. The founder of Popeyes, suppose, like, this, and I, and I found it where it's declared this. So people think that Popeyes is, like, for Popeye the Sailor Man. It's not. He named this mo- he named Popeyes after Popeye Doyle. He was that much of a fan of the French Connection. I swear to God, because Popeyes was founded in '72, a year later, and he started making the, the fried chicken and opening those restaurants, you know, in Louisiana. But he named it after Popeye Doyle and not Popeye the Sailor Man. That's insane. That means like this location should be like the central headquarters for Popeyes Chicken. Like that's insane. <laughs> right? It's it's so funny because like when you look at it. It's almost like a bar you wish you could kind of go to nowadays. Obviously not the drug dealers and the crime, but it's like a cool like CD70 bar. Like kids in Bushwick would love that kind of shit now. But now when you walk into it, it's this like super clean, tiny little Popeyes that has like four tables. There's like no room. And to think that there is that much of a connection. That's so funny because my girlfriend and I were debating. They're like, She's like, there's no way there's any connection to this movie from the 70s from this fried chicken chain. You know, there's just no way. They just yeah. saw it as a good location to put another Popeyes. <laughs> Alvin C. Copeland claimed he named the stories after the fictional detective Jimmy Popeye Doyle, betrayed by Gene Hackman in the 71 film French Connection, which came out a year before the chain was founded and knocked the comic strip character. That is... That part of it was taken from a Times article from 2008. It's so, so bizarre. That's, <laughs> that's bizarre, so bizarre, right? <laughs> because, like, in what way does this character kind of inspire you to name a fast food yeah. chain? <laughs> and and what's so funny, also, like, just besides, like, the smell of the Popeyes every time I now pass that stop and how I'm only <laughs> going to think about that, but also the part of the movie where, where Popeye shoots shoots the guy that he's chasing i'm forgetting his name nikolai in the back i thought i when i first saw the movie this is before i moved to the area and i had sworn i was like that has to be the stop that hat because it looks so much like the above ground subways it's not it's in a southern part of brooklyn way different and we can get into that when we get to the car chase but i i i was convinced for so long and then when we watched the movie a couple of weeks ago and we were in the theater. I was like, oh, my God, wait, no, that is down the street. Like, the other <laughs> these other locations. It was awesome. I, I was I very much liked it. And 
who would have thought that a best picture winner like this whole time we were recording like we could have known this we could have just been sitting outside on that street in our area and, been, and recorded the podcast from there it would have only felt right <laughs> if we did it there. I should been, walk there right now. It would have been the worst quality recording ever because that that corner and area is just so <laughs> insane. Just filled with people. There's it's so funny too because that area, like there's been known drug busts. Like there is still a known it's a known area there's that still. there's drug dealers there <laughs> and they hang around and it feels a little seedy still. And to think yeah. that like 50 years ago, they were making a movie at the same exact location about it being drug filled and just it, like disgusting. It's so funny. And now just as a beautiful orange Popeye's taking its place. Yeah. <laughs> oh man. I love that um, you, you described that cause I didn't know that connection and that really makes it so much better, but I think it's, a, yeah, right. <laughs> it's amazing. I love that. I think it's, perfect time though to transfer into talking about jimmy doyle or popeye played by gene hackman and and what a amazing performance i love hearing friedkin talk about working with him and how hackman was like not even his second third choice he was like the last person on the list because this film was he didn't want him yeah this film was so hard to get off the ground yeah he wanted like a reporter for like the longest time instead of an actual actor and, and it's not like Gene Hackman was an unknown. He had just been nominated a couple of years before in Bonnie and Clyde. So it's not like this guy was just like, oh, came out of nowhere. We had no idea about him. No, not at all. And you watch this film and you see like the iconic imagery, his iconic outfits, his, his adorable little like hat. And you can't imagine anyone else playing this character. He's like this ball of just rage and anger. And it's fascinating because I always think of Gene Hackman in the conversation, which I've seen like five or six times. And you can see a lot of similarities in this film, especially of the tailing, the listening, the following, the tracking, you know, all these different elements that we can kind of see in terms of the story and the plot. But in terms of the characters, Jimmy Doyle or Popeye is insanely different than his character in the conversation. And it just shows his level of range. And I love when Friedkin talked about the production making this film and how he kind of got Hackman to be at that place at all times, which is like a level of just like 11 out of 10 anger, just like constantly like a pot of water ready to boil over at any point. And I love that kind of, he just kind of reminded me of like this like rabid pit bull who was just like ready to chase after anyone at all times. And I love his relationship even with his, you know, detective buddy Russo or cloudy. It's a great like kind of relationship they have that the film doesn't go too deep into of exploring, but there's enough to like understand their history and kind of, they do love each other in a weird way that detectives I think only really have. But yeah, what did you think of Gene Hackman's performance as Popeye? So I I had written down, like, when I first watched this movie, just, like, some notes, and I wrote, you love the fact that you're rooting for him to succeed because he is just an awful person. So I think Hackman's acting co- contributes at least to how I felt to his character and ultimately why he would walk away with Best Actor that year. And I, and I still think that rings true. Like, I don't... He's a very deplorable guy. I mean, even the scene where he kind of chases that... Not chases the girl, but follows the girl on the bike, and then they have sex, but it's very ambiguous as to like, how did you get her to sleep with you at when you probably look and smell awful because you're on an all night sting. And this is like, it's seemingly like 6am in the city and, and you're able to see like, it's, you don't know what he did. And I think that's the thing is like, you don't know who the actual Popeye is. And I think that's also kind of Friedkin's approach of like, 
these detectives, these cops who are in narcotics, have to kind of take on a different identity, have to go be a little bit sleazier than, than they should, I guess, to accomplish the job. Again, I'm not condoning that behavior, but it makes for an interesting character to look at. But he's also, like, hilarious. I mean, the scene where... You know, he again busts that bar. You know, one of two lines. All right, Popeye's here. Get your hands on your head. Get off the bar and get on the wall. Just the way he says it is so like funny. Like Popeye's here, and then he takes all of the drugs from the bar, puts it in a cocktail shaker, mixes it all up, and just says, "Anybody want a milkshake?" <laughs> yeah, you're. You explain him perfectly. He's like this. He refuses to really let the audience in to see who this person is, you know, and if he's not distracted by the case or like consumed by it, he's drinking himself to fall asleep. You know, he like never wants to be sober in a way. And it's not because he's like a raging alcoholic. He just almost doesn't want to live with himself. He wants to like hide behind these things, hide behind the case, hide behind the alcohol, hide behind, you know, a simple sex exchange from this woman, which, yes, I thought the same thing. You know, how many times have we heard cops doing creepy things? And this is not to go against every cop that exists out there. There's plenty of wonderful and plenty of bad cops that exist. But how many times have we heard like an example of like, oh, like a woman's pulled over. But, you know, you can get out of it if you do a couple things, you know, and whether that happens or not, probably not very often if it does. But it makes you think like, what is this person capable of? What are they hiding from us as the viewers and, and what? What does he let us in to see, really? And it's not. Like, this film is so centered on the case. You know, from the very beginning, we're immediately thrown into the plot. These people are transporting heroin. They're trying to get it into New York City. And then it's boom. We're with Popeye. We're with his partner, Cloudy. And we're following and following. And what I love so much about this movie is that how we get into the plot is just through our characters. You know, first they set it up. They explain what's happening, the drug deal, and how it needs to get to New York. But everything from that point on is from Popeye's perspective. We're following him, and it is a great way you've explained it is a Tom and Jerry, like a prey versus you know predator kind of hunt where we see these characters slowly going over and over and following each other and seeing every move that Sal makes or that Devereaux makes. You know, it's, it's, it, it creates such engaging filmmaking that like you wouldn't expect. Like you look at this movie, and it's about exactly 90 minutes. It's got a great runtime. It's really paced well. But you're watching and you're like, why is this so good? There's almost like no actual like soundtrack. There's barely any music in the film. It's mainly just like your diegetic noises that you hear in the environment. But you're so invested. You want to know, like, is this guy actually involved in something criminal? You know, is the detective right in pursuing him or is he completely off balance? Is he off his rocker? Like we know he is because we see more and more about his character and we see like how kind of insane he is about solving crimes. And he's like so obsessed with it. He's kind of lost himself in it. And yeah, what did you think of of that kind of breakdown? And what did you think of mainly following Popeye as our lead character and then following it through his eyes in this kind of cat and mouse chase? Yeah. So I I think also with how you're describing like watching him deteriorate. And, and kind of not like go insane about it. Like he, there's no like psych, psychotic episodes going on with him. And he's just like very involved. But we as the audience know that he's right. We know that he that what he's doing is justified. And I think that's what makes, again, like the edit to take out the censorship. Interesting. Like we know the intent. We know that he's just trying that. he. And again, if you want to get into a whole argument about 
cleaning up the streets and and drugs that that's a separate thing and for 1971 cleaning up near the near city streets of drugs was very appropriate to do and 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 was very justifiable i think to a widespread audience so so again i we, we as the audience know that he is justified that the demands that he's asking for that although he seems crazy that he seems loud and brash to his co-workers to other cops detectives is justified it makes sense it his car chase scene it it is it's has a purpose to it and i think that's what makes the the character really interesting and again it's not like i love the character but he does a really great job with the performance and and one other thing i want to go back to when you talk about friedkin and and hacking being this essentially this boiling pot of water is that apparently friedkin said that he would yell at behind from behind the camera after scenes were gone essentially saying that like you were shit like that wasn't good i've seen better (laughs) oh is this what we're going to deal with today to hackman to challenge him because hackman apparently wanted to walk off and didn't want and almost quit the movie but he stuck around and he he let that rage build he let which seems like so bizarre that like a director would even do that i know we've seen depictions of it and we hear stories but it seems so bizarre when you hear Freed can talk, when you hear like they want that documentary style filmmaking for him to then recognize, oh, I got to tell Gene Hackman, you're a piece of shit today. And you did awful with your acting in that scene to keep him going for the next scene so he can do a, a bang out kick ass job. Yeah, I found that the interviews with Fred Freakin describing his production and describing this film in particular, you know, he's a really young guy and he describes how. He was at some times during the filming like one of the youngest people on set, yet he is directing this like $1.5 million essentially like cop action film. So I imagine the pressure was probably immense on his shoulders and he's using tactics of directing that some people might find manipulative, some might find it kind of disturbing in a way. But it's funny because he he talked about using it and how other directors in the past have used it, especially when you look at like Kubrick and The Shining and, and Duvall's character of being kind of harassed to the point where he will, he went out of his way to say, like, I don't think that's right. I don't think this is the way we should do it. And he almost looks back at this film as being like, we didn't need to make the film this way. But at the same time, like, look at the results that we got from it. And that is so clear in Hackman's performance. He's just constantly like so ridiculously angry and tense and annoyed. And you can even see it in the car chases where he talks about Bill Hickman, who is like the main stunt driver for the chase scene and how he did the same exact thing with him. You know, they filmed a bunch of different footage of the driving scene and Bill was like, well, like, you know, how did it come out? How is it OK? Like, what do you think? Like, do we need to change anything? And Fred Freakin just said, it sucks. Like, it's lame. It's boring. It's not good at all. Like, this is terrible. And that pissed off Hickman so much that he's like, get into my car right now. Like, we're, we're I'm going to show you, like, how good of a driver I am. And he described how he went, like, 90 miles per, per hour down these, like, crazy Brooklyn streets. And that is, like, the main take that we see throughout the chase scene. So, you know, it, it is, like, such an interesting thing seeing the behind the scenes of how directors work and how really a director's job is not only about, you know, creating this vision and, and bringing tone and, and making sure this whole thing is concise and understandable, but it has so much to do with the actors and the crew members and creating an environment that is best for their character and, and the overall production. 
you know, and I think it is true that like you may look at this and be like, whoa, that is intense. But at the same time, like look at the results that we got such an amazing performance from everyone in this film. It, it, it just like it, it does really feel so lived in and so real. I think using the term realism is, is so so right for this film because it does feel more real than I think any film that we've seen so far. I think you could look at like Midnight Cowboy and you could look at In the Heat of the Night just kind of trying to introduce us and getting us to that point of a true realistic feeling. But I don't think we've really hit it on the head until the French connection here. Yeah, so why don't we stick on the realistic feeling? There's a lot. I feel, there's so much that I would love to talk about with this and I don't want to have a three-hour podcast. But <laughs> <laughs> the realism aspect um what did you think of the cinematography and the block lighting the how gritty it looked because it may this movie does not jump out as stylistically and aesthetically a best picture winner and and again like i think that's why the fact that it won and the story behind it is like is very fascinating it's a way out there story it's it's great i mean it's almost an action movie you brought up you know, Chris McCreary talking with Friedkin, it very it makes very much sense that you would have a very director who's into action 20 years after this movie came was made probably took a ton of influence because this car chase is so iconic. So I keep on teasing the chase and we will get to it. But like, <laughs> I just wanted to ask about the cinematography aspect of it. Like, was it effective enough for you? Do you think they could have stylized it more that it could have been better lighting? No, I really loved the realism that they kind of try to represent the big pockets of shadows, you know, characters turning into corners and you almost like lose them entirely because it is that it's the whole point is them trying to create a very realistic lived in New York. And I think they achieve it so well. I mean, even from the very opening scene where we have the Popeye as a bad Santa Claus, a detective undercover in a Santa outfit, which is just a hilarious way to introduce our character. It almost feels like a a cliche now for cops to like you know be dressed up in some uniform undercover it's almost like this kind of added and, and kind of cemented this as a very detective undercover cop thing to do is you know stand on the streets of new york but dress as a santa claus or dress as a milkman or a post office worker you know some random thing and you can see it right away from that opening scene or the opening introduction of our two detectives is the handheld camera work. Like it is literally just a man holding a camera, like chasing after them. But it makes you feel as if you're one of the detectives. It makes you feel as if you're, you know, the third partner who's involved in the case. And it does kind of bring you down and kind of grounds you into this world. I, I love the cinematography. It's it's beautiful at the same time as it is kind of ugly in a weird way where it, it does perfectly kind of show this this gritty, this dirty, kind of slimy New York. But at the same time, I mean, there's like a lot of beautiful imagery to this film. You know, the, obviously we get the chase scene, which is like made and put together with just impeccable editing. But I, I do love the sense of everything is cinema. I, I think my buddy Gavin and I, when we were in college, we we almost tried to like lean into that, but we went so far into the point of like, God, this is like not interesting enough to make it something that is classified as cinema. But I think with enough of a driven plot, interesting characters that you can film something in a way that is very 
what I would call simple, you know, it's not trying to be over stylistically because that's not the point of the film, you know, it's not trying to show off these amazing camera angles, it's trying to to ground you into this world and make it feel like it's lived in and make it feel like you are along on this ride and this film does very much feel like a ride, you're with these detectives until the very end, from the first beat of solving, introducing this case to the very end of kind of finishing and wrapping up the case. So what did you think? Did you think it was enough for you or did you wish that like there was more style in, in the cinematography here? I, I always go back and forth with, you know, this a movie like this, a movie like in the heat of the night where it's very realistic looking as all block lighting. It, 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 it uses night as a big backdrop for a lot of it. So I always just go back and forth. I mean, it's not the best looking movie I've ever seen. And I think that that, is I think that's a compliment though to the movie where that it may not be the best thing you'll ever see, but it visually, but it will be one of the more gripping stories that you can be a part of. It's a, it's what an hour and 40, 44 minutes in runtime. So the fact that like it grips you, the story keeps you engaged the entire time. I don't think there's a scene that's fairly unnecessary in it. And it, it, it makes a really good pacing of the, of the plot and the story. So it, it, it all makes sense. So, yeah, maybe it's not the best visual-looking movie, but I think that its other parts make it a really good whole. So there's, I think there's, like, three scenes. I want to talk about the chase, them tearing apart the car, and the ending. So why don't we just talk about the car chase now? <laughs> because chronologically, it would, it would make sense to do it. Just to give a little bit of background from... I, I think we both have a lot of background info on this, but I want to go a little bit farther back, probably in the pre-production period where the producer, Bill D'Antoni, challenged Friedkin to make a car chase that was better than the car chase in Bullet, which came out in 68. So he's like, this iconic car chase scene that everyone loved this movie for, do a better job than that. So first you have that kind of pressure to, uh, to kind of do that, a little bit of a challenge creatively. And then they didn't get the proper permits <laughs> to film this, which is wild when you actually watch it. So supposedly members of the NYPD tactical force helped control the traffic, but most of the control was achieved by assistant directors. So they, or probably PAs, random people like the, you'll see now in New York city streets. It's like, Hey, you can't walk here for like a second. Cause they're trying to shoot something. Like can you imagine like telling traffic with like <laughs> really nothing else besides like yourself. Yeah, fuck you, buddy. I'm going to drive because it's a green light. And one other thing, too, that because it was very loose and maybe not the safest of stunts, but Friedkin operated the camera himself in the car because the other camera operators were married with children, and he was not. <laughs> John, I know you have a ton of other background info, so definitely lay out the car chase scene for everybody. Yeah, absolutely. I'm glad that you mentioned Bullet because we also have – Bill Hickman, who was also the stuntman driver for Bullet. So he was right there and, you know, let's try to achieve something that is is even beyond. It's even kind of pushing beyond that film and is something that really will make this film stand out. And I think, you know, without a doubt, this film is still regarded as one of the best car chase scenes of all time. And I think that still stands till to today and I even went back and watched Bullet's car chase scene to really compare and see the difference and that is a very different kind of car chase scene it's much more akin to like a maybe a, a James Bond than I would say this is more akin to what we would relate to like a Mission Impossible car chase it's a lot messier there's a lot more happening there's a lot more you know accidents all over the place but 
I wanted to reference this quote that I found, which is really interesting because it involves another very iconic film director. At about the same time, Mr. Friedkin met the legendary director at Howard Hawks, who warned him about making several failures in a row. In Joseph McBride's interview book, Hawks on Hawks, Hawks recounted the advice he gave to the Greenhorn director. Quote, you're going to run out of pictures. They're not going to let you make them unless you make something that people want to see. Do something that's entertaining. People seem to like a chase scene. Make a good chase scene. Make one better than anyone's ever done. End quote. And he did that with the French Connection. I think that is a perfect way to kind of describe not only that Friedkin felt like they needed something to really kind of give this film its oomph and its kind of pack. And he even described it in that Academy interview, which is amazing. If you really love this film, you should really go check out the Academy interview with Chris McQuarrie hosting. And he described how, you know, the film could be a lot different. It could have went down in history a lot differently if it weren't for this chase scene. And he felt like they needed something else. Otherwise, this film was just going to be a constant, like, Tom and Jerry episode. This cat and mouse of just following each other. And it's like, who wants to watch that if there's no, like, big mm for grand conclusion to it? And I think you could argue that maybe even a negative to it, which we'll get to, is, is the ending. To me, it is almost a negative because we get the highs of the car chase scene, which becomes really the highlight and the climax for me for the film. So in terms of the actual film, I mean, it's beautiful in terms of the chase scene. I mean, it's beautiful. I, I love how visceral it is, how engaging it is. And Friedkin even described how it wasn't really written out in detail in the script. It basically described that there was a chase scene and they broke down the individual shots. But even the construction felt so loose and new wave cinema where you described, you know, he, he himself, the director, is holding a camera shooting our main stunt driver as we go down the street and that ended up being the iconic you know take for most of it the attached low angle on the car and yeah before I go into references to the Batman which I I would love to talk about because (laughs) one of our favorite movies of last year the Batman and there's just so many connections and ties to this film that after seeing this I'm like wow the Batman it's one of those things where you get educated as a cinema viewer over time where you're like, oh, that's connected to this. That's a reference to this. That's, you know, you start to like understand more connections throughout cinema history. And this is one of those where I'm like, wow, this movie is almost just like the, <laughs> the same movie in a way. Like there's so many connections yeah. to the Batman from the French connection. But before we go down that road, I'm curious, is anything else about this amazing chase scene? I mean, really, for me, what jumps out is the iconic moment of the baby in the baby carriage and Friedkin talked about yeah. how that was basically the only actor that involved in this whole car chase the rest was not you know made it was completely made without any sort of permits which I also want to talk about but yeah tell me your opinions on this chase scene is it your favorite car chase scene of all time yeah it's definitely a, it's a loud and it's a lot of fun car chase scene there's no music to it and and one of my favorite things about it, again, Friedkin's interview, he talks about Don Ellis, who composed the score for the movie. And, and I don't know if many of you know who Don Ellis is. He's a jazz musician who, who's just great. And uh, there's not much score to this movie, but what is there really works. So I would wonder like what that would have looked like. But then also the weird other music connection to this is that... So Friedkin said that, that he used Santana's cover of Peter Green's song, Black Magic Woman, that Santana did to help with editing the chase scene the song doesn't appear in the movie and i kind of want to do this where i want to take black magic woman and play that with the the chase scene 
But I kind of see the like build up the and how that would like <laughs> how that kind of build up would work really well with the moments because as he's getting faster and faster and chasing the and and almost on its tail you can feel that build up and then also the beginning the like the long kind of like droney parts that santana brings out in that song i feel like kind of works again perfectly with like this beginning of like please stop and like gotta get going and and like like driving off I think kind of fits perfectly with that song. So it's interesting to read that note. And the last thing I want to say about this, and this is just a personal aside. When I first watched this movie, it was during, you know, as I've said before many times during quarantine and COVID. And it might've been, I guess, around like maybe May or June of 2020 when I was watching it, but I was watching it in my room and I was living at home at the time. And I guess it might've just been too loud where my dad was like, Oh, what are you watching? I can hear it. It sounded like the French Connection. And I go, (laughs) it is the French Connection. And the only things that he was hearing were crashes and loud car noises. (laughs) And I think that, and and I think that really, and when we watched in the theater, it's that how great and grand that is. It's just like the car chasing, it's Gene Hackman, get out of the way, get out of the way, and just going for it. It was really cool. And now that you said the Batman, and now that I'm hearing this analogy, it is. You are right. It it is the same exact movie. So go ahead. I can't wait to hear this one. It is so similar. And I think it really comes down, especially to the car chase scene. I think there's so much that has kind of been ripped out of the Batmobile chase scene that we have in the Batman. Even down to like the expressive close-ups of Batman's eyes as he's like opening and kind of like opening his eyes as wide as he possibly can and, you know, avoiding things, avoiding accidents. And it's almost like the Batman has tried to level up and, and take it up a level and, you know, integrate new modern special effects, integrate like the crazy rain and the crazy, you know, accidents that you see that they couldn't do back then especially without getting really any permits or anything like that so not only do we have like scene for not scene for scene but complete elements that are totally ripped from the french connection i mean even you see hackman's character like screaming at at certain points in his car and there's literally the same exact shot of batman just like screaming as he's driving in this crazy chasing it's completely almost one-to-one Obviously, we have the relationship that he has with Gordon, the good cop, bad cop. There's a direct scene where, you know, Popeye is is interviewing someone or really interrogating someone who's just an undercover cop. He knows that only only the only way for this undercover cop to get out of this and to really look like he's not an undercover cop is for Popeye to give him a punch. So he he's looked at as a criminal and what happens in the batman that exact thing happens in the batman with the batman punching gordon in order to escape and get out so there's some things that are like direct references that are flipped on its head you know we're messing around with other references to the french connection and we also have certain things like obviously the standard good bad good cop bad cop the the interviewing techniques that they have on the penguin where you have the batman you know as the bad cop gordon who's kind of being more on the light side trying to get the information out of him so there's just so many references throughout this to the batman we both love that film so much that i had to bring it up yeah there's, and you didn't mention i thought you were and that's the low angle shot from the car absolutely and yeah. french connection that's like kind of the primary shot they use for a lot of the scene which 
was pretty effective, but in the Batman they use it, and it's interspliced with a bunch of cuts. But that low angle shot is from the left side bumper mm-hmm. and going right to it. It's like an exact ripoff, and uh, yeah, I thought I think that's a great connection. And we've talked about before, I think off, <laughs> obviously off the mic about the Batman, but that movie at times felt like this French neo noir new wave type of movie. And we're talking about a movie and wondering, is this French New Wave? (laughs) It is. It's so fascinating how much is ripped from it. And that brings up such a big question of like, is that okay? Is that wrong? And it's like, yeah, because you're that is what cinema is at this point. It's hard to make anything original. I mean, before we started recording, we were talking about meta modernism and and talking about just kind of where cinema is at in terms of overall looking at as a piece of art and, and seeing how much we've changed. And we're at the point where we're just like everything's just new technology like we have these story beats we know these characters like we can't really like go so far out of the way of making something really that different unless it's utilizing our new technology that can kind of push us to the push us to pandora with avatar or you know push us to getting a lived in gotham that feels real that feels gritty like the french connection does but it's elevated it's heightened because it's a made-up city that is supposed to be more fantastical and and supposed to be kind of more out there and you know there's such a long history of creators loving the french connection i think it's inspired so many films like a lot of these iconic films of the 70s that we're going to hit on but i think you can even look at a really close connection with the safty brothers who benny safty has kind of directly referenced and said this is one of his top five favorite films of all time and not only from their depiction of new york city the gritty realism the handheld cinematography these this very kind of like 70s aesthetic that they've taken and kind of pumped neon into and made it a more modern take but even down to their characters i think you can even look at popeye's connection to adam sandler's character in uncut gems this guy that you find kind of lovable but he's kind of a scumbag you're you you kind of can look at it both ways where you love this protagonist but also hate him in a way yeah we're talking about chases as well as good time the entire movie is about chase showing this different version of new york city an underground not a more urban projects looking area and that's where a bulk of the movie takes place as well so it's very i I think it's great and there's a lot of filmmakers who have directly talked about this movie akira kurosawa says one of his favorite movies david fincher cited the french connection as one of the five movies that had a profound impact on on his life and it served as an influence for the cinematography of Seven. And Brad Pitt, who's also admired the film, cited that that was one of the main reasons why he chose to be in Seven was because of the French Connection. Connection. Spielberg, as well, has said that he took that he studied the French Connection to prepare for Munich, his movie, which is a, a thriller, uh, not really a detective, but just there's some there's a lot of spy stuff going on in that movie. So I can see Spielberg being like, well, what's some of the better like spy movies like? you know stakeout kind of movies and french connection probably has to be up there yeah so absolutely right yeah and i think the last aspect of the car chase that we should talk about is the ending of it and him shooting the guy in the back which is such a I, i just love how he is like so tired and dead himself at that point you know like he can barely even stand before he can he can barely even get a word out of his mouth you know yeah he he can barely get a word out of his mouth and he fires the gun, shoots the guy in the back, and there's some 
some police officers weren't necessarily happy about that. They're like, well, a cop would never shoot somebody in the back. But again, Friedkin was very like, no, this is what the character would have done. This is what yeah, he no, did. Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, he's someone who, especially after that whole situation, I mean, how much property damage did Popeye do along that chase scene? I mean, I love uh, the, the, the police will take care of it. The banging <laughs> up against things. He just keeps going and going and going. And he is probably like has a couple of broken bones. You know, he's probably exhausted. He's also been running in between the car chase after the car chase. There's so much going on. And I it's crazy to me that that iconic image of him being shot, the expressive hands back, you know, mouth open wide has become like an iconic image from this film so much that it's even used in the advertising. It makes me think of like, how crazy of a spoiler is that? You know, this is like over an Huge. hour into the movie. We have one of our main villains, the main henchman, who is up in this point chasing after our protagonist and almost kills him before the car chase scene. Yet you show in public advertisements him being murdered. It's kind of wild. It's something that I don't think we've really seen before. Maybe it kind of pushes the envelope. It tells the audience this is not what you'll expect this is violent this is visceral I, what do you think of that I, I always found that so interesting because it is such an iconic image used from this movie that it's like why would they do that why would they show this aspect this very key important moment of the film yeah and on the the poster you're talking about it even says doyle is bad news but a good cop <laughs> It's uh, yeah, I I it's a huge spoiler. Like I don't it's pretty surprising that they would do that, but it's an effective image and I think it allows people to be like, "Oh, what's this? What the hell Why, is that?" Why, you know, is yeah, he's a good cop, but bad news and is the bad news that he is a murderer, that he's shooting people, like is he French himself? Is this what the French do? Like I don't know. <laughs> it is it's one of those images that almost feels like it's moving even though it's static. Like you can feel like the moving imagery of it, whether it's the gunshot, him falling down the stairs. It's like a moment caught in time that you know is going to be visceral and it's going to like represent something terrible and you know that his body's gonna fall down, you know there's gonna be probably blood. It is very intriguing as like a viewer of just the poster itself. And I know we've been talking so much, but before we go off of the chase scene, I just had to talk about the little bit of a story that Friedkin gives in that Academy podcast or the Academy interview where he talks about, you know, there's no permits for this film. There was one permit and permission granted for this film, and it was this chase scene. And you would probably think, oh, it's it's the, you know, blocking the streets, blocking it all off. Nope, it's not the street. It is the use of the train, being able to shoot on the metro and being able to show it almost crashing and speeding to a break with the emergency or speeding to a stop with the emergency brakes. And the story he tells is just amazing. I think it perfectly summarizes 70s filmmaking, this guerrilla style, this grab a camera and run. We'll see what happens and we'll you know make it in the edit. And Friedkin describes this amazing story where him and his location manager went and spoke to this person who was in charge of either the wing, this district of the metro. He was in charge of basically allowing them to be able to shoot on the metro. So they go, they ask him, the guy says, like, you know, we've never done this, like a metro has never been taken over by a, a terrorist, there's never been an accident like this on the metro. All of this is very unrealistic, plus how would we ever get this done? I'm definitely going to be fired if we if I allow this. So they say, okay, like we'll have to change it, we'll have to do something else, and they're about to leave his office until, of course, money solves everything, 
the Metro employee says, wait, maybe there's something we can do. You can give me 40 grand and one ticket to fly, one way ticket to fly to Jamaica. And of course, being able to offer this location and secure the Metro location, they agree to it. But before they agree, Friedkin has to know why the one way ticket to Jamaica. And the MTA employee explains, well, obviously this is insane. I'm going to get fired from this entire thing. As soon as I give you guys permission and this is all done, there's no way they're going to let me have this job. So I'm retiring with that 40 grand and taking it to Jamaica with a one-way ticket and living the rest of my life. And Freakin just describes this as, yep, we've never seen him since. He lives in Jamaica now and he's probably dead, you know, because I imagine that this is like a... (laughs) A 50-year-old man who's just, like, ready to end his life just because he's so tired of working, right? So just to get this ticket and ride off, it's incredible. It's, like, such a, an amazing is, story, you know? Man, is that all it takes to convince an MTA employee to let me drive the subway? <laughs> <laughs> well, think about it. I mean, forty grand in 1971. I, like, yeah. That's probably 150 yeah. off the top of my head if I had to guess. Like, it's probably around that. Maybe it's, even, like, 200000 Especially for somebody who might, you know, was probably living, you know, uh, a poor state of life and, you know, and was going to use that to live in Jamaica, probably made it worth uh, and last a long time. Just beautiful. It's like the kind of storytelling you would never hear. And Freakin even describes that himself. Like, you would never make a movie like this, nor would I even make a movie like this today. It's, it's, no, it's insane the way they kind of made this movie with just grabbing cameras and running on the streets, basically. It's it's awesome. It's an awesome scene, and I love how well documented it is. And I would implore our listeners to watch maybe just that scene if you don't want to watch the movie. But let's move on. Uh, I think there are just two more scenes I really want to talk about briefly. The first one is when they are tearing apart the car. I thought that was such, I thought, such a great scene because you're one, you're very tense. You're you're like, what are they going to find? How are they going to find it? Where is it going to be? It's a little satisfying too to watch a car get taken apart like that. It, I don't know. There's some weird, it's like oddly so satisfying, satisfying thing about it. So satisfying. It was, and then I love the interactions when, like, they can't they can't find it when they when they're like, "What the hell?" And and you as the audience, you're just like, "Where the hell did they put it?" Because we know it's there. We know <laughs> that they've been right this entire time, and we're just like, "Where's where's the heroin, man?" And so I love this dialogue of when they start to realize it. So Buddy is going, what, what was the weight of the car when you got it, Irv? Irv goes, 4,795 pounds. You sure? And Irv goes again, that's what it was, 4,795 pounds when it came to the shop. And Russo, Buddy Russo says, but the owner manual says 4,675. That's 120 pounds overweight. And when it was booked in Marseille, it was 4,795. That's still 120 pounds over, overweight. Jimmy's got to be right. Talking about Popeye. And Irv is just listening. He's being a little defensive. And he goes, listen, I ripped everything out of there except the rocker panels, which Popeye just goes, come on, Irv. What the hell is this? Like, what are we doing? <laughs> that you, the one thing you didn't want to check that you know you didn't check was the rocker panel. <laughs> and so I love just that that scene and that moment for, for Gene Hackman and, 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 and Roy Scheider. And apparently the guy who played Irv was an actual police mechanic. And just again, about like the area that, we're, that we were in, I was Ubering somewhere a couple weeks ago and I'm pretty sure I passed what is the NYPD's 
mechanic shop for the entire city in wow. in near our area because there's a it's like there's a huge lot of space there had to have been a thousand police cars there and they're just bays upon bays of mechanics working on cars i'm like this has to be where the police go to get cars fixed look at cars strip it down like this so i just love this scene i love the interactions and the how how tense it is that you're just waiting for them to find the drugs and then you're like hell yeah they got the drugs they can keep this going so what, what did you think of that scene it's such a great highlight of like how comedy works in this film where it's so tense and tense and then they just like break it with comedy and i think that's why gene hackman has such an amazing career is he can be so intense angry he can play the villain but he can also play this like sweet endearing man that you can like laugh at and he's really great at comedy and he he you can already see that here you know he's he's balancing it so well where with that anger and that ferocity of what the heck is that like it's so freaking funny because yeah of course it's the last thing you check it's always that way you know it's always the very last thing that you would ever kind of think of right and i love that it's not only the police mechanic it's the police mechanic who was involved with the actual crime that this film is based off of so again it's like not only is he trying to create this realism in the sound design and the cinematography the look of the film he's bringing these real life people in he's not an actor he's the person who's involved with his crime as much as the detectives were and wow like what a what an amazing little performance from that guy who's not an actor has no experience feels so authentic and lived in and just adds to the overall realism and i love at the same time we have the frenchman being like where's our car like what is taking so long (laughs) it's impounded so you have like the humor of that because we as the audience know they're just being strong-armed and they're just so dumb they don't even realize it they think that they're just like completely getting away with this crime so it's just it's amazing and it comes back not only to the great realism that they kind of evoked from this film but it also goes to what we haven't talked about, you know, before we heard about the controversies, the censorship, our opening for the podcast was going to be about either maybe like locations or specifically, I really wanted to talk about vehicles as a character. And I think this film is like the perfect representation of that. We have this Lincoln that is like the target. We see it from its very inception from France, travel to the boat, you know, removed from the boat. We see it almost as this character, this object that they're trying to get, that they're trying to kind of strip down and and figure out where where are the drugs? Where's the money? You know, where's the connection? Plus, we also have Popeye's car. You know, I forget the, the specific make and model of the car, but it is such an important you know, character throughout this at, at points where he's like sleeping in the car. He's constantly in the car. He's constantly just sitting there. He's eating food in the car. Like he, it's his home in a way. He spends more time in his car than he does in his apartment in this film. And then of course the iconic chase scene, which is about vehicles and the car that he steals. You know, there's there's a lot to this that kind of identifies these characters in their cars that they become vehicles in in themselves and they i mean they become characters of themselves and they're so iconic the imagery of these cars in this film have kind of stood the test of time and it's you think just as much as you think of popeye you think of that lincoln you know that breaking down of the lincoln trying to discover its secrets i love it it's just it's amazing it's such a great way to kind of incorporate the surrounding the objects and make it more than just an object yeah i definitely agree with that and i again like i love the car the car parts of this are great, and especially when they're being stripped away and just that whole scene. And it feels like that character is present there as if like 
it's a guy who's like refusing to give up. He's like, I'm never going to give in. You'll never find the drugs. You'll never find it on me. We found it on you. And so to give just a quick shout out, Irving Abrahams, who was Irv, being the, being the police mechanic in that scene, did a great job balancing that. So, John, I just want to wrap it all up. Our discussion on the French Connection, which I'm, I was very much looking forward to. This whole year, I'm very much looking forward to. This might very well be a three-hour podcast. Let's talk about the ending of this movie. I said that it ends on a literal bang, which is true. So basically, the movie ends where they they bust everyone at this drug deal. They're, they're trying to find the guys. They run everybody up, and Popeye's looking for Charnay, and he can't find him, and he shoots... I what are we supposed to think that he knows that he shoots that that he's trying to shoot Charnay, but he accidentally shoots moldering one of the fellow detectives that's been on the case. It's a little ambiguous and it leads to the ambiguous ending where they just go off around the corner, goes to black and then reveals title cards about the fate of everybody and then ends with that again that sound that noise of a bang within the movie. So what'd you think of that ending? How it just like it just ends. Like we don't really get to see the yeah we got him because i guess they really didn't but they sort of did in the sending of this movie yeah no you're exactly right they did but they didn't you know the main criminal got away but they kind of pinned the other ones but they also got away on light crimes and they didn't serve much time for such an insane drug deal that was happening in the city based on a true story which is even more crazy that this is all real and there's some actual realism to it and all ties back into why they probably made it so real and feel so grounded but the ending is interesting. It is kind of one of the biggest negatives that I feel about this film. That I've said it before, obviously it's not just Hackman is why I feel this way, but this film is very similar to the conversation in, in terms of the cat and mouse, the constantly listening. But instead of it being about detectives and more of a kind of thriller chasing scenes, you know, more of a action kind of police drama, it's... The conversation is more of a psychological drama. It's like Coppola watched that. He saw the amazing performance with Hackman. And he's like, how do we how do we amplify that? How do we really drive this character to the end, to the end of its wits? And how do we make it more psychological and torturing? And that is, I think, what this ending is lacking a bit. You know, we get a sense of he's going to keep chasing. He'll shoot at anyone randomly. He'll shoot at the dark if he thinks he can get them because he's that close. Like he's so angry that we've gotten this close and we can't even get it. But that's also a lot of me projecting. We kind of just kind of get that. We get that from this scene, but it's not enough for me. I wish we got some more with, you know, Cloudy and Popeye, how they continue, how they adjust to their new life. Maybe we get a scene that's, you know, they're at their new department and they're just not satisfied. It's not the same thrill. It's not the same level of chase. Maybe they kind of wish that they went and and actually finally caught him. Maybe it still hangs on their shoulders. And maybe that's me projecting because I love the conversation so much. But to me, the ending lacks a little bit. It, it is it's just as visceral as the rest of the film. But I wanted a little bit more than just these title cards. You know, I, I just wanted something more from our characters and just something that was more concrete of an ending. And it's not just they needed to catch the bad guy. It's fine if they tell the story the way it actually happened. I just wanted something more from our protagonists more than anything. But what what did you think? Did you think this was enough of an ending? Did you wish there was more like I did? Yeah, I, I think that's my biggest gripe with it is that that just ends. And I wanted more. I wanted to see some more resolution. And I the title cards were an interesting choice. It still didn't give me enough of like, 
okay, I understand like why maybe they got off or why like I guess that would have required a whole other movie. So I don't know, but then again, at the same time, like a freaking all he had to do was just do a shot where they're all outside breasting people, and Char- and then show another shot of Charnay able to escape, and it's just like okay, like he got away, but we're able to, to still see. Popeye get a little bit of the retribution of that, like, okay, I, we got him, but maybe he wasn't satisfied. And then for them to be kicked off the narcotics team, it's like, well, why? Why were they kicked off narcotics at the end of the day? Because didn't they accomplish what they tried to do? Or is it the fact that he shot another cop, whether it's by accident or not? I, I don't know. Yeah, I think it's exactly that. I think it's that that ambiguous nature that we have with cops where they're they can do something really terrible but at the same time maybe even the same day they can do something that's grand and heroic and something that's so violent and disturbing like killing one of your own men in a way the ending also hints at that it's like "Mm, no like we'll wipe it under the rug like everything's going to go about and we'll change you to a new department and and that's okay. You know, you'll just keep being a cop. Just don't worry about it. It'll, it'll all settle down eventually. You know, don't worry about it. But, you know, if we're not getting enough from this film and it's ending, that's why in 1975 they made The French Connection 2, baby. I haven't seen that yet, though. I'm sure you haven't seen that either. The FCU, The French Connection universe. <laughs> I think that we've kind of hit the nail on the head with uh, French Connection and it's been a lot of fun talking about it but let's talk about the 44th Academy Awards now a special program in living color on NBC Live, the 44th Annual Academy Awards presentation. This is the plaza of the Music Center in Los Angeles, California, which tonight is a suburb of Hollywood. Since early morning, crowds have gathered to watch the stars who arrived earlier for tonight's ceremony. Like Peter Finch, nominee in Best Actor category for Sunday Bloody Sunday. And lovely Anne Margaret, Best Actress nominee for her role in Carnal Knowledge. And there's Ben Johnson, Best Supporting Actor nominee for The Last Picture Show. One of the most beautiful actresses in Hollywood, Jennifer O'Neill. There's Jean Hackman, star of The French Connection and the nominee. There's a lovely Betty Grable who has thrilled audiences for years. James Kahn from The Godfather. Jane Powell and Dick Haynes. Walter Matthau, also a nominee for Kutch. Helen Hayes, First Lady of the American Theater, and Jeff Bridges, another nominee. There's Richard Jekyll. And Isaac Hayes, nominated for Best Song from the Motion Picture Chef. The 44th Annual Academy Award Show is brought to you by... Chevrolet, building a better way to see the USA. Jell-O Soft Swirl, the new dessert that lets you treat your family like company. And the Shell Oil Company, Shell Products Perform. Every year of the Academy Awards is an anniversary. This evening, in addition, we're throwing a birthday party. 
Forgive us if it's a bit premature. Actually, it will be six more days before Charlie Chaplin is 83. With esteem and affection, with many smiles, and not without a few tears, we welcome him home. Tonight, he will receive our only honorary award. But there are other awards we've been waiting a year for, and we won't have to wait much longer. It's a delight to present our tour conductor for the early travels of the evening, a two-time Oscar winner as a lady of the pavements in the sin of Madeleine Claudet, and the high-flying stowaway in airport, Miss Helen Hayes. As George C. Scott didn't get around to saying last year, thank you for that reception. <laughs> Um, I'm very pleased to return to California for this very auspicious occasion and to join with my friends who will be presenting the awards tonight. Um, gratifying as that role is, let me tell you that whoever was the first to say, "'Tis better to give than to receive," obviously never was up for an Oscar. Let me try to explain to you how we pick our winners. And oh, I hope I do it right, because if I don't, I'm apt to get the Academy in trouble. We'll be investigated or something. Uh, who votes for the Academy Awards of Merit? Who nominates them? Well, here's the answer. Now, first of all, all eligible Academy members are asked to vote for nominations for the best picture of the year. And then all the other nominations are done by Academy branches, um, specialists in their fields. Uh, actors, actors vote for actors, and feel, uh, uh, film editors vote for film editors. And uh, then finally, all Academy members are asked to vote by by sealed ballot for their, um, for the Academy Award of Merit, all of them. And uh, those ballots they send to the um, special independent accountants of the Academy, Price Waterhouse and Company, for tabulation. Price Waterhouse and Company are the only people who know the results. And tonight, some representatives of that firm will be carrying the sealed envelopes which have inside the names of the winners and will give them to the presenters. So, I got it out. <laughs> Try to remember that sometime. Um... The 44th Academy Awards were held on April 10, 1972 at the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion in Los Angeles, California, and the hosts consisted of Helen Hayes, Alan King, Sammy Davis Jr., and Jack Lemmon. 
This was the first time in which the nominees were shown in superimposed pictures while the categories were announced. So, Ben, right off the top, we have such an iconic aspect of the Academy Awards. Not only are we so used to seeing clips, but to think of not even seeing like images of our performers as like the categories are going and being announced, it's, it's, it's a little odd. But now we finally see it's kind of embraced to what we expect from the modern Academy Awards. I'm sure there's not too much to say, but it's just it's, it's kind of exciting to see us kind of slowly continue to develop the show that we're used to today. Yeah, it shows the development of technology with broadcast TV and also the failure of the modern Oscars to not show clips and <laughs> everything during the ceremony. I digress. The, like this is like the pinnacle of like this is what the Oscars should be. Like why don't why are we so afraid of this? Like what's wrong with this? I mean, I understand the people attending it is like the issue, but uh, still adapting it to be like this, I think is what we need. But anyways, <laughs> honorary Academy Awards that year, there was one given out and that was given to Charlie Chaplin. I received an honorary award at the ceremony for the incalculable effect he has had in making motion pictures, the art form of the century. This is Chaplin's first Academy Award. Chaplin's first Academy Award came all the way back in 1929 for The Circus, and he's been nominated an additional three times. His last film, Limelight, would win the following year for the next ceremony for Best Music Original Dramatic Score. When introduced to the audience, Chaplin received a 12-minute standing ovation, which was the longest in Academy Awards history. The Oscars has part of the ovation and the, and the award being given out. The problem is they edited it themselves when they released on youtube and i can't find a 12 minute ovation clip now i don't know how the broadcast handled that i don't know if they cut away from it in the middle of it went to a commercial break and we're like oh we'll just come back when it's over but 12 minutes of standing ovation is a very long time but the the clip itself and the parts you do get to see that they do have available is quite moving and it's just chaplin just in awe in almost disbelief of like how you know it's this old older man how, how did this happen almost like what what is this like i did not expect this kind of adoration and it made me tear watching him just beside himself but john what do you think of watching chaplin get this ovation yeah it's it's really stunning i mean he's 83 years old at this point in time you know he only dies five years after this so it is really the kind of like climax and conclusion to his career and and being honored this way and I, I think he is as emotional as he was because I believe during like the 60s late 60s and into this period of time he ran into a lot of trouble he was involved in like a court case and it became very public I think some people even looked at it as one of like the messiest kind of court cases for a public actor at the time and this is he was kind of shunned from Hollywood for a long long time it's why I think even limelight took so long to be fully released I'm not a Chaplin expert. I would love to read his book and go back and watch the Chaplin film. But it it is amazing that we finally get to see him really get credited for establishing cinema. And I love that quote of, you know, he's being awarded because he has kind of defined what cinema is, what comedy is in cinema, what, what it means to tell a story without any sort of dialogue even. What an incredible filmmaker and just amazing that he finally got his due and we finally get to honor him in the way that he kind of deserves so, so many years later after his first Oscar. Yeah. And if you recall back to that first Oscar, it was not actually a competitive Oscar. 
they gave him an honorary award at the first ceremony for the circus because and i think we even said it so much just like well if we did nominate you we'd have to pick you <laughs> type of thing and it, it was more it felt like well this is a recognition that you are quite clearly like at the top of your game and doing this but I, we've also talked about how the oscars were not necessarily made to celebrate intentionally it was more to keep unions together keep the, the whole industry together so there's a, a lot of reasons why he didn't get an oscar like a competitive oscar but it's this is a great clip and, and it truly shows the importance that he of his impact and what and what he meant for hollywood so great moment great oscar moment very happy that we get to talk about it but john take us away to the oscars themselves from this year best special visual effects went to bed knobs and broomsticks from danny lee eustace lysett and alan maley bed knobs and broomsticks is about an apprentice witch three kids and a cynical magician con man searching for the missing component to a magical spell to be used in the defense of britain in world war ii ben do you have any connection to bed knobs and broomsticks have you ever seen this movie did you watch it as a kid no did you wow really okay this was like a huge yeah. movie growing up in fact like this chitty chitty bang bang like those two i obviously mary poppins we get some other disney classic films bed knobs and broomsticks was like a huge film for me growing up we used to watch it all the time we used to like love seeing it is an insane insane movie if anyone wants to take some psychedelics and, and watch a crazy film that mixes live action with animation it is a trip. It is such a fun ride, and it's so goofy and ridiculous. Next time we're together, Ben, we'll just have a great night watching that movie. It is so goofy. Yeah, I, I'm like looking at the images. I'm like, what the hell? I, I've never <laughs> seen these images before. But I think maybe because my childhood was filmed with Chi Bang Bang and another movie that we will definitely talk about in a couple minutes. <laughs> Best film editing went to The French Connection to Gerald B. Greenberg. This is Greenberg's first nomination and win, but he would go on to be nominated for Apocalypse Now and Kramer vs. Kramer. 1963, Gerald Greenberg began his career as an assistant to D.D. Allen on the film America, America, which was directed by Ilya Kazan. D.D. Allen has been called, the, quote, the most important film editor in the most explosive era of American film. She helped develop the careers of several editors known as Dee Dee's Boys, and Greenberg was the first. In the 80s, Dee Dee Allen would struggle with the advancement in technology and fell behind the curve due to the rise of digital editing software. Greenberg convinced Allen to go back to school to learn NLE software, nonlinear editing software on computers, and the mentorship roles reversed as Allen then shadowed Greenberg on editing a feature digitally. That is awesome to see that and to know that Greenberg himself was able to adapt, but also to help D.D. Allen adapt. This editing in this movie is phenomenal. I think that is what keeps its pace really well. And I, I just want to just wanna sprinkle a little bit of Devil's Advocate, John. Another movie that's nominated there is A Clockwork Orange. <laughs> Should that have one for best film editing? Just, just asking, just wondering. No, The French Connection is amazing. I don't think that chase scene... It just it wouldn't be the same without the editing. I mean, the visceral nature of the editing, the cutting back and forth from the driving, the train, looking up at the train, you know, looking down at the road, almost hitting someone, like close up of the eye, like all of it constructs this insanely visceral chase scene. 
I mean, it's why we're talking about this movie, you know, so many years later, because people are still enthralled by this chase scene. People still call it one of the best chase scenes of all time. And, you know, what did we say? An hour and 44 minutes this film is. And it just it really flies by. It is it is paced so well. Like you said, there's no scene in this movie that really feels it needs to be cut. It just keeps us going, keeps us moving into this case. I know you like the Clockwork Orange. Say what you got to say if you I'll think it should win. But... in the rain. <laughs> no, I, I agree. French Connection is a, a great, beautiful edited film. I am just floored still that Clockwork Orange is nominated this year for many categories. And it is definitely one of my favorite films. You can check my letterbox. I'm pretty sure it's in my top four. Anyways, John, let's move on. Best cinematography went to Fiddler on the Roof by Oswald Morris. This is Morris's only Academy Award win out of total out of a total of three nominations, and he was nominated for the 1968 Best Picture winner Oliver and The Wiz from 1978. Ben Tradition and- <laughs> Tradition. <laughs> so I got to watch Fiddler on the Roof. This is a completely well-deserved win. This is a beautiful, beautiful movie that is just stunning. I mean, I was, like, really blown away by just how beautiful the cinematography was in this movie. I mean, even from the opening moments, the fiddler on the roof, the beautiful sunsets, the beautiful village that they show that's just so lush and feels so, like, real yet so fantasy-like, you know? I really, really loved not only the movie, but I adored the cinematography it really did feel like a fairy tale that was brought to life so this is a movie that i love i love this movie and again this is the movie i was kind of making mention before of like i'm very excited to also talk about this movie is a big part of my childhood i i would never have thought when i was watching the french connection that it would get beaten out by by fiddler on the roof same thing with a clockwork orange same thing with even the last picture show like those are beautifully shot movies but then fiddler on the roof is it's not, you know, it's not, not like, oh, why is this here? It's, it's a beautifully shot movie. I mean, the amount of angles they got, all the Judaica, all the other religious aspects, and then the village itself, the way it's captured, the, the, it's, man, so it is very, very well done. It's huge. It's like, it feels like a huge scale while being so intimate on so, on many different levels. So it's not the last time I'm going to sing some uh, Fiddler on the Roof. That is a perfect example the film looks great as it is now, but it's not, there's no 4K version of it. This is a perfect doc- opportunity to bring this film back, restore it, and it looks, this movie would look so good in 4K. I just know it would. <sighs> I, and it deserves I it. I agree. And I, I don't want to bring this up. I agree, but I don't want to bring this up, but I feel like this is kind of the appropriate tie in. Supposedly, they're remaking Fiddler on the Roof. Interesting. Supposedly, in, 20, in 2020, they started some development on a remake of it. Now, do I want a remake of it? No. I don't know who can perform the role of Tivier. Well, let, let's take a guess. And I, while we're uh, on this topic, I'm curious. Would And you know, I'm just throwing this out there. Don't don't get offensive. It, say this what? movie is made in the four years. Would Seth Rogen work? Could he do it? Could he actually do no. it in a convincing way? No. He absolutely has, not. He has to be older. Do you, do you actually know how old Topol was? When he made, when he played Rev Tevia? Let me guess. He's younger than I would expect. Just, just say a number. I want to hear. He was 40. 36. Wow. That's yeah. insane. That man he's, looks like he's 56 at least. <laughs> yeah. That's insane. Well, we'll get to best, we'll, we'll get to best <laughs> actor. 
Best art direction went to Nicholas and Alexandra. Art direction to Ernest Archer, John Box, Jack Maxted, and Gil Paranato. And set decoration by Vernon Dixon. Still just thinking about Seth Rogen. <laughs> God damn it. No. <laughs> just some, he, he could not do uh, if I was a rich man. There's you, no way he could do that. You know he could. It would be. I don't no. think anyone would take it serious because of him being seth rogan but i really think but that's could. the problem that, that that would be the problem is no one would take it seriously where this movie is it's very serious very yeah. serious it, it's it's not trying to be like let's make you know fun of jewish culture it's like like no this is jewish culture that but instead we're gonna kind of do it in our own the the way the comedy of that movie is so unique and it's so uniquely jewish that for seth rogan to jump in it, it would just like i know he's very funny but it would it would make me more uh, mocking than actually celebrating it I totally get that. Yeah, totally. It makes me think, though, like with the modern age, how they would try to modernize the film because the film is very much of the time. It's supposed to be demonstrating what it was like at that time for Jewish people in that location. But how would they, you know, twist things and adjust things? And and, and the idea of tradition that, no, we have to live this traditional life. And like, wait a second, I'm being told I can't, I don't have to live this traditional life, mm-hmm. but it's tradition. But why do we do these things? Which in the modern I th- world I, feel like I think could be muddled yeah. heavily you know yeah yeah could be very muddled heavily and could be just a train wreck if did if done wrong <laughs> yeah best sound went to I agree Fiddler on the Roof by David Hilliard and Gordon K. McCollum this is Hilliard's first of two Academy Awards and McCollum's first and only Oscar win so the movie beats out French Connection also beats out Diamonds Are Forever the Bond movie of a year. What What do you think? Because sound is always an interesting category. Because I I don't know what truly makes best sound, and it and it seems to never follow the same. You know, some years you'd be like, oh, they're like they would give best sound obviously for the musical, but then it goes to like the big action movie. So like this this year went to the musical, but should have gone to the French Connection because of the sound design of that movie and how sound is so important because it really is not much of a score, or is the big you know operatic com- you know component and and composition of fiddler on the roof is that, like that outweigh it i think it does i mean fiddler on the roof definitely is shot at times on scenes but it feels very much on location in a lot of it and it feels grand and it feels like they are in the wilderness of where this would take place at the time and i just imagine you know, they get credit for ch- achieving something like that, being able to record sound on location like this and in a very kind of natural location as well. But then you're right, like the French Connection, it was probably impossible to get real sound from recording locations because it was probably filled with just like car, car honking, people yelling, screaming. It is it is challenging because the French Connection relies so much on that sound design and not so much on the actual music itself that's kind of occasionally scattered through. But I don't know, man. It, this is like a really hard one where I just, I agree with Fiddler on the Roof, but I also kind of agree with the French Connection. I could, I could see how either of those could be a great choice, and I'm not mad that the Fiddler on the Roof won. Yeah, I think some of the sound effects that go into, like, Topol's performance, like if I was a rich man, in the towards the end when he does the, like kind of chanting the and he goes like and it's like reverberated like that probably could help its win i think also when i was re-watching the movie you know when we were preparing for this episode one thing i realized is that there's a lot of big ensemble singing 
but really the only people who are singing are is is Reptevia and Golda, his wife. There's no one not really many other like solo vocal performances. It's all ensemble. It's all group singing. So I wonder if like that and the way that it kind of weaves in very perfectly with the movie without you realizing, oh wait, shouldn't there be a ton of other people singing along with us? I think that's what kind of helps the the movie itself. So maybe that that's why it also went for sound. Moving on to best song original for the picture. That's the name they decided to call it this year. <laughs> went to the theme from Shaft, from Shaft, music and lyrics by Isaac Hayes. This is Hayes' only Academy Award win. So Isaac Hayes told Mojo Magazine back in the 90s in 1995 that as this was my first such undertaking, you know, writing the music and composing it, at the initial meeting I had with the producer and director in New York, you could see the anxiety on their faces. They tested me by giving me the opening scene, footage of Shaft coming out of the subway, to take away and see how I got on. I remembered a guitar line I had in a tune I'd never used, got it off the shelf, and had our guitarist play it exactly the same, but with a wah-wah. I don't know if people know many what a wah-wah pedal is, but it's a foot-controlled thing that makes your sound go like wah-wah, like literally a wah-wah, and that is very iconic with the song. And then Hayes would go on to say, then I got our drummer to play 16-note sequences on the hi-hat, and we had it. The core rhythm for the tune, the springboard for the whole soundtrack, they had cut in under two hours. <laughs> the following year, the theme from Shaft then would obviously win Best Original Song, of Hayes becoming the first African-American to win that honor or any Academy Award in a non-acting category, as well as the first recipient of the award who both wrote and performed the winning song. So very a lot of groundbreaking for Hayes, and again, the fact that that theme from Shaft, which is very iconic, was just a two-hour little, I gotta put something together, is quite beautiful to me. It's it's incredible. It's amazing. Like, what an iconic song, too, that we, like, still kind of reference in yeah. pop culture today. It's so sexy. And it's hard not to think of that song without thinking of lust or, like, being so cool, having, like, swag and, like, swagger ooh, on yeah. you, you know? <laughs> awesome. Yeah, exactly. You could just hear, like, ooh, yeah, in the background. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. I mean, it, it's a great way to introduce our character. I went back and watched the opening of Shaft, and I was like, wow. One, very similar kind of, not aesthetic, but it's a similar opening to midnight cowboy where we have this character and it's playing this iconic song it's not you know it doesn't have a lot of singing or anything in it but it's <laughs> it defines our character it defines our journey that we're about to take with this character as well. That's a sex machine to all the chicks. Shaft! Damn right. Who is the man that would risk his neck for his brother, man? Shaft! Can you dig it? Best scoring adaptation and original song score went to Fiddler on the Roof, adapted by 
Mr. John Williams. This is John Williams' first Academy Award win out of five wins and 53 total nominations. This win is Williams' only win for best scoring adaptation in original song score, as his four other Oscars were for best original score. So, Ben, as the Fiddler on the Roof lover, I've only seen it once, but tell me, why does John Williams deserve this? I love that John Williams got this, and it the score in the movie is quite beautiful. I mean, it it's not his work per se, but again, like the way they adapted for the screen and used is quite beautiful. I, I feel like when you are able to adapt a Broadway musical for a film, you get a little bit more. There are more instruments you're able to include in the arrangements. There's more sound. There's more that you can build upon because you're able to control it a little bit more versus a live environment, like performing it on a stage. So it's really great. And again, like that note that this is the only time that he won for an adapted score. All of his other music is original. So you can just imagine. And man, I'm not going to say that like Schindler's List directly rips it off. But in Filler on the Roof, there's definitely that just that Judaic sound. It just feels familiar to me. And I don't know if that's the way that that prayers are said or if the way that the Hebrew comes off and the the way... you know, the way that it sounds just to my ear and, and different words and, and the way consonants are brought out. It, it feels like Schindler's List direct, has some of the filler on the roof aspects to it to honor that music. So John Williams definitely had some practice before, you know, writing that score you know, 20 years later. So I th- very iconic. Absolutely. I mean, I think you also can't ignore Willy Wonka and the Chaka Factory in there as well. I mean, what an iconic oh God, film, yeah. iconic score. I mean, I also love Bedknobs and Broomsticks, but for me, this is first and foremost Willy Wonka. I mean, I love that movie. It's one of my favorite movies of all time. Every song, even the stupid laundry song, which is definitely the worst song in the movie, with his mom, every song is amazing in that film. It's a beautiful, every song is singable, catchy, just beautiful. Wait, why is the song with the mom? Is she singing the Charlie song? Why is that? I just think it's the worst song in the whole movie. Oh. That's it. It's not bad. That really shows how great the soundtrack is, that even the bad song is still the emotional, you know, mother-son song. It's just, it's not as inventive visually, and it's not that interesting of a song for me, because the rest is just so vibrant and in your face. And, man, I just love Willy Wonka, and one day we'll record a whole episode on it. Yeah, so what I'm interested by is that it was put into the adapted score category where what was this based off of? I guess because it's based off of a book, but it's either no that book or I just don't know enough about Willy Wonka. Maybe yeah. it was established as a play first off, first and foremost, like a musical maybe, but From my knowledge and history of it, I've never heard of that. I know it's been since made into musicals, but I've never heard of it being a musical before the actual musical motion picture. It doesn't look like it was. So that and that's just the weird stuff because maybe if it was put into original score, maybe it could have. I don't know. I mean, I would have to listen to the summer of '42, which we'll get to next. But I think just the importance that John Williams got at Filler on the Roof gets you know recognized this year for song you know and and score is great because a lot of our favorite musical adaptations don't get to win this category because it is an adaptation so very cool that it was added moving on to best original dramatic score that one went to summer 42 to michelle legrand this is legrand's second oscar win after previously winning 
for best original song for the windmills of your mind from the thomas crown affair from 1968 best animated short subject went to the crunch bird from ted patoke best live action short subject went to sentinels of silence to robert amram and manuel Arango. best documentary short subject went to sentinels of silence Robert Amaram and Manuel Arango. What? What? Yeah, when what? I mean, good for <laughs> good, good for that. I mean, uh, it's definitely it it's happened. I mean, we had a few years ago with Flea when it was a uh, documentary feature, animated feature and international feature. So, sure, a live action short and documentary short. Sure. Imagine just being one of those other people in the documentary category, and they're like, "What the? What the hell? Like they already won? (laughs) What the hell?" Damn! Now I feel like I should watch it. We should watch it. (laughs) It better be that good, right? You know. Should we watch it? Is it how long is this? Is it right now? Can we watch it? (laughs) (laughs) Silence. Nineteen seventy-one film. It is eighteen minutes, John. (laughs) All right, eighteen minutes of a watch along. Let's go. All right, we watched along, and moving along to <laughs> Best Documentary Feature, went to The Hellstrom Chronicle to Wallen Green. Best Costume Design went to Nicholas and Alexandra by Yvonne Blake and Antonio Castillo. Best Foreign Language Film went to The Garden of Finzi Cantinis to Italy and to director Vittorio De Sica. Best Screenplay Based on Material from Another Medium went to... The French Connection by Ernest Tiedemann, based on the book by Robin Moore. The French Connection is an adaptation of Robin Moore's book of the same name, which dealt with the true story of NYPD detectives Eddie Egan and Sonny Grasso, the cops who broke up a notorious drug operation and confiscated 32 million pounds worth of heroin. The two of them agreed to serve as technical advisors for the movie, which the screenplay itself, penned by Ernest Tidyman, experienced changes in the course of filming in favor of phrases suggested by Egan and Grosso, whose rich experience on the force contributed to the dominating sense of realism in the film. Man, this is a very interesting breakdown because, again, this is like... What you know? What makes a best screenplay a best screenplay? Because the other nominees, you know, we also have a Clockwork Orange and like Last Picture Show in there, and those are two really strong scripts and stories. I can understand maybe not a Clockwork Orange, but it's very good adaptation of the book, and a lot of people point to that ending and the and the ambiguity of the ending of the movie versus the book and and why that choice was made. So. I, I don't know. I, I definitely am not upset the French Connection won. I just it's a really strong year, so I just wonder if there is a little bit of room for argument. Also the last picture show, maybe you know, that, that there's some really great quote quotes in that and I think that's what helps the two supporting performances that we'll talk about that go on to win. I think it really is helped by the screenplay. So I don't know, John, any any thoughts? Are you cool with it? Would would you have picked differently? I thought it was really interesting Friedkin talking about this film and how the two detectives that we reference here said it's about 90% accurate in terms of, you know, this took this whole film takes place over the, well, not, I shouldn't say the film, but the true story takes place over 10 months. And they were able to kind of condense and create a film that is very engaging, fast-paced, and still gets the entire story very clearly of the case. So I think it's very well-deserved. I think I look at films like The Last Picture Show and A Clockwork Orange, and those both seem like daunting undertakings because they're such large, 
there's there are larger films than the French Connection. The French Connection is more narrowed down and tighter, and it's about you know mainly these two characters, mainly really just our one main character. While the last picture show on Clockwork Orange, just they have so many more characters. It's much more complex plot. There's just a lot more going on. So maybe there's some credit to be kind of given there because it's a little more complicated. But I think it's very hard to take something that is based on a true story, especially in crime, and make it not only very compelling, but so compelling that, you know, it became such a phenomenal film for the year and went on to have a sequel made. Best story and screenplay based on factual material or material not previously produced or published, which is the longest way of just saying best original screenplay went to the hospital to patty chayefsky patty chayefsky previously won in 1955 for marty for best adapted screenplay and would go on to win for network in 1976 so three academy awards to chayefsky best supporting actress went to cloris leachman for the last picture show as ruth popper this is leachman's only academy award win and nomination and Leachman won many accolades, including eight Primetime Emmy Awards from 22 nominations, making her the most nominated, along with Julia Louise Dreyfus, the most awarded performer in Emmy history. She won an Academy Award, a BAFTA, a Golden Globe Award, and an Emmy. So I, I really love this performance by Cloris Leachman. It's so funny because <laughs> my first introduction, I think, to Cloris Leachman, like that I recognized her as the actress was in Beer Fest. <laughs> she plays the grandmother in that movie, and that was like so bizarre to then see her in other stuff and other productions because that role is so funny. And it just like they do some really funny bits with her. Wow, I had but no idea. That's mo- insane. <laughs> right? <laughs> you yeah. blew my mind. <laughs> what? Yeah. <laughs> um, she, yeah, so, but then in this performance in the last picture show, I... Man, there, there's something so it it's the dark one of the darker parts of the movie that that is not so direct. It's very indirect with what the subject matter is, and the subject matter, you know, on the surface, it's about our main guy falling in love with this, you know, this older woman because he was helping drive her around because the coach was asking him to do that. What we come to then find out, and the subtext of it is, she's going to therapy and she's depressed there she's anxiety there there's some like mental just like she's you know something mentally going on with her i won't call it an illness because i feel like that is what was like painted on her by her husband in the movie by like this you know stigmatism about like mental health and awareness and and talking about depression and anxiety and so the fact that that's part of this you know part of this movie one that when it's first introduced is really it's so haunting and and so gun-wrenching because you can because she, she brings such a great performance and weight to the movie and that and that key scene when she, when it starts to kind of realize oh she's there for depression and then the movie falls out she like really comes like into herself and then the ending is all about how she's made to feel by the end of it but that she's accepting of it and it's like this big come come around moment and about what this movie really is is like human connection and bonds and how that is interwoven, how those bonds are tested in life by, by normal situations in life. And I just really love I love the movie, but I really loved her performance. So very well deserved. I was very, very pleased with the performance and the win. Moving on to Best Supporting Actor, 
That one went to Ben Johnson for the last picture show as Sam the Lion. Uh, this is Johnson's first Oscar nomination and win. Uh, Johnson was an American film and television actor, stuntman, and world champion rodeo cowboy. You know, tall and the strong silent type, Johnson brought authenticity to many roles in westerns with his droll manner and expert horsemanship. One, this is a stacked supporting actor category. You also have Jeff Bridges, also from The Last Picture Show, Leonard Frey from Fiddler on the Roof as Modal, and Roy Scheider in French Connection as, as we're talking about with Buddy Russo. Just all around, like, some really strong performances. And for Ben Johnson to get this, again, I, I was very pleased, and I thought he was very strong in the movie, especially that scene where he's talking to the boys before they go to Mexico and gives them lines, and also when they confronts them about what they did to Billy, just commanding performance and, and very much you can tell in that Western style of acting in terms of bringing cowboys to life. John, I know The Last Picture Show wasn't your favorite movie, but what do you think about the two supporting performances and if you feel that they're deserved or not? I know Roy Scheider being there like that feels like, oh man, why didn't that one win? But what are your thoughts on it? Honestly, I think Roy Scheider is a weird choice. I mean, I think he's great in French Connection. He's an important element, but I just don't think he's integral enough and has even enough like oomph to his performance to even be nominated here. Not that there's anything wrong with the performance. I just think, you know, there's probably someone else we could have squeezed in here instead. But Ben Johnson does give a great performance. It's funny that the film is kind of really attached to these supporting actors. You know, it's kind of like the difference between the I don't want to say the elderly, but the middle aged versus kind of the new youth, the, this weird coming of age film. And I don't think the film really works without those kind of anchors that kind of teach these kids or teach them a lesson or try to educate them, even though they are just as flawed, if not more flawed than the kids themselves. It is an interesting film. And I think it's something that I would appreciate a little bit more. Maybe if I watched it, you know, a second time, I think there's a lot going on in that film and it just feels so different too compared to the other films that we have this year, but no, well-deserved for Ben Johnson and Cloris Leachman. Best actress went to Jane Fonda for Clute as Bree Daniels. This is Jane Fonda's second nomination, but her first win, and she would go on to be nominated an additional five times and even win best actress again in 1980 for coming home. Jane Vonda is an American actress and political activist who first gained fame in comedic roles but later established herself as a serious actress. While she's the daughter of actor Henry Fonda, Jane separated herself by choosing daring and challenging roles like her performance as a sex worker in Clute. Vonda's outspoken anti-establishment and anti-war activities during the Vietnam War caused tension in Hollywood, but her performances still stand on their own today. So, Ben, first, I want to ask if you've seen Clute before, and also, what do you think of Jane Fonda? I think it's so funny that we're in this kind of period now where we, we still have these actors. I mean, we have Jeff Bridges, we have Jane Fonda. They are both in, you know, modern films today. Jane Fonda was just, you know, in a film very recently, about a month ago, and she's the lead actress, I think, in that film as well. So it's just, it's getting really fascinating that we're getting to this period of Oscar history where we can see some of these actors and actresses today still on screen, still in multiplexes. Yeah, so I've not gone to see Clute, but it was one of the movies I was trying to get to for this episode. So for those who don't know, Clute, neo-noir movie, bit of a thriller. It was directed by and produced by Alan J. Pakula, and Pakula 
this is actually part of what is deemed his paranoia trilogy, which was, so this is the first one. It was followed by the Parallax View in 74, and then All the President's Men, which I have seen from 76. So I thought that was really interesting that this movie has a connection, which is why I also wanted to watch it. Also, Roy Scheider is in it. Donald Sutherland is in it. So I was very interested in watching it, and, I, and you know, obviously I want to see Jane Fonda, and you know she's an incredible actress. She's been able to have kind of this revived career because of like a show like Grace and Frankie. She's so beautiful, you know, in her 80s. So just I love Jane Fonda and everything she stands for. Best actor went to Gene Hackman for The French Connection as Detective Jimmy Popeye Doyle. This is Hackman's first of two Academy Awards. He would go on to win for Best Supporting Actor in the 1992 Best Picture winner, Unforgiven, and he has been nominated a total of five times. William Friedkin stated in the BBC documentary that he had never read Moore's book that the film was based off of and disapproved of the casting of Gene Hackman. Various modern interviews with Friedkin, Hackman, and Grosso, uh, Sonny Grosso revealed that the filmmakers considered Robert Mitchum, Peter Boyle, Jackie Gleason, Eddie Egan himself, and popular New York columnist Jimmy Breslin to play the role of Popeye. Breslin was briefly hired, but Friedkin said in the in the documentary that he was fired because his acting was below par and he could not drive. Gene Hackman spent a month patrolling the New York streets with Eddie Egan so he can get closer to the character's spirit. Hackman was also adamantly against using the N-word on screen, but freaking convinced him Eddie and the policeman at the time would not hold back on offensive language, which I guess Disney deemed inappropriate as they edited it out. So I want to talk about best actor for this year. I, as we touched on before, a big fan of Fiddler on the Roof, but I'm also a huge fan of A Clockwork Orange to the extent that I think that Malcolm McDowell's performance in A Clockwork Orange is one of the better performances I've ever seen. There is a command and a villainy that he brings to that role in just a stare. There is a huge weight that he brings to this character that is borderline insane in many ways. And it works so well. It's one of my favorite performances in a movie. And, you know, I don't think that we would have a, a performance like Heath Ledger's Joker without a movie like Clockwork Orange, without Malcolm McDowell's performance. There's a lot I think you can extrapolate right there. And really any villain that comes after, I think, takes a little bit of inspiration from it. So he was not nominated for this. So that's one person that I've always felt like should have been nominated at least and should have won. But also, we have Haim Topol, who played Tevier in Filler on the Roof, and I can't say nothing but glorious things about Haim Topol in this movie. I, as a kid, I used to sing, if I was a rich man, like I used to sing it all the time and do that like accent and the <laughs> hand movements, the gestures, the this like, philo- like the way he adapted a like philosophy and outlook on life of, well, why do we do these things that are traditional? I don't know, but we do them anyways. Like that, the breadth of the character and, and the weed of it is so real. And as you know, we were talking about before, I asked you like to guess the age of Heim Topol at the time. He was 36 when he made the movie, and he looked way older. He looked like this much older Jewish man. And, and that, you know, I know it's makeup, but still that's some of the acting that makes you believe it, that, make, that makes it seem real and authentic. It's pretty wild. So I like Gene Hackman's performance, but I, I, I feel like I can present two stronger cases 
for for an Oscar win. John, I just want to get your thoughts on that. Would you know? I'm not saying to pick you know maybe Mal- Malcolm McDowell, but I'm Topol. I mean, man, that performance is quite. It's good. incredible. I mean, he he really does create such a vivid character. This like haunted father who's you know stuck with dealing with how to understand these traditions whether to continue them or not even though they're like so ingrained in his soul but even his relationship with his wife like the earnest that like that earnest feeling that you get from the two of them that this they were put together in an arranged marriage but they've come to love each other and they really like establish that relationship together and it's really anchored by his performance and the weight that he carries throughout the film i think he it's it's an incredible performance i think you're exactly correct in that state but i mean so is gene hackman's performance in the french connection but i'm gonna go with someone who's not even nominated here and it's another gene the gene that i think should have at least been nominated is gene wilder for willy wonka and the chocolate factory and he is phenomenal i mean the movie doesn't work without him he is the core and the linchpin of this movie and he it's just incredible. I mean, it's still a film that we talk about today. It's a performance that we talk about today. People still spoof and, and replicate aspects of his performance in characters today. And it's, 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 it's kind of insane to me that we've kind of looked past this film that in terms of this year, they looked past this film and didn't really give it much credit. I mean, we got the, the nomination for the score there, but this film deserves so much more than it did, and it's probably because people didn't really realize what it was, almost. It almost kind of reminds me of The Wizard of Oz, almost, where it was like not fully appreciated until years passed, where people were like, no, this is one of the defining musicals of the generation, and it just happened to come maybe a little later than what uh, people expected but yeah what a an amazing performance from gene wilder but at the same time i don't think gene hackman doesn't deserve this you know he is incredible in this movie and he's so vicious and mean and especially when you see gene hackman outside of his films and in interviews and you know on like round tables he seems like a very genuine nice guy who's is funny he's very like goofy and he doesn't seem at all like this character of popeye so Again, shows the amazing performance that he's given. And all the way cutting to the future of 1922, where he wins for the supporting actor for Unforgiven. I mean, the man's got range. He's so good as a villain, so good as a protagonist, so good as a mixture of both. It's very well-deserved. But, yeah, you're exactly right. It is a stacked, crazy year. Yeah, it, it definitely. And I'm not trying to say that Gene Hackman doesn't deserve it. I just... I look at some of the other performances and, you know, Gene Wilder is is another good one that could have been there of just like, man, like what, like what are, what, what makes the best actor, the best actor. And I'm always asking that question, like what makes the best, the best, what, and I feel like with, with actor, like, man, I'm Topol, like really does like command that screen. And and there's so much comedy there. There's so, there's a, a, a wisdom within the character. I mean, yes, the character he's bringing to life. So I just, I just wonder, like maybe, maybe they got it wrong. Maybe they didn't. I don't know. Like, like if you were to vote, would would you write in Gene Wilder or would you I would, Gene Hack? I would go with Wilder. I, I just love the what movie too much to my core. It's hard not to. I mean, I grew up just like idolizing yeah. that man, even though he wasn't real, didn't exist. You know, he Gene Wilder for me yeah. for the longest time was just Willy Wonka in my head. You know, it didn't matter how many times I've seen Blazing Saddles or young Frankenstein he was always Willy Wonka and still to this day I don't care who else will play him he's it's always going to be Gene Wilder yeah I mean I I'd probably just go up Heim Topol 
because I like I kind of like want to secretly keep like Alex Delarge just like yeah we know how great you are we're gonna keep you on the side because you're just so good that we don't need to award you for it but I <laughs> being a little facetious about that I I don't know I still would pick Heim Topol over Gene Hackman and that's not trying to diss anything about Gene Hackman it's just two different ways of commanding the screen and how different they can be and, and how effectively they can work. Best director went to William Friedkin for The French Connection. This is Friedkin's only Academy Award, but he would go on to be nominated for Best Director for The Exorcist in 1974. Director William Friedkin later admitted in his biography that he had almost didn't make it to the Oscar ceremony where he won the Best Director Academy Award. His car broke down at a gas station, so he asked the first person he saw permission to borrow his car. The man initially refused because he was supposed to take his wife on a date that evening, but he relented after Freakin offered him $200. The man's only other condition was that Freakin call the wife in order for him to explain why the date was called off. After winning the Oscar, the man waived his right to the money, only asking Freakin to call and explain the situation to the man's wife, which of course Freakin did. So not only is that just such an adorable, hilarious little story about, you know, the the access to get to Hollywood, the struggle that like sometimes even the winner of best director can sometimes you know have issues trying to get to the location, trying to get to the Academy Awards. It's something that you wouldn't really expect, especially for someone who would go on later to win best director. And how funny is it that he has this happen to him in the same way, like Popeye stealing that pedestrian's car in the chase scene, you know, Friedkin's just kicked down. He's like, police, 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 and steals it. But he's just trying to get to the Academy Awards. That's yeah, it. I think it's a great story. And it yeah, you're right. It does fit thematically with the movie and we talked glowingly about Friedkin I think we both fell in love watching him talk about the movie and just watching the movie and bringing it down on an intimate level like I really do appreciate Friedkin's work more than I thought I would with the movie and again just because it's a very stacked year Stanley Kubrick for Clockwork Orange Norman Jewison for Fiddler on the Roof Peter Bogdanovich for The Last Picture Show even John Schlesinger who one for Midnight Cowboy is Study Bloody Sunday here you know to the it, again like it's so it's so interesting because th- such different styles of filmmaking and, and that's why i kind of asked that question earlier and maybe we can break it down more when we talk about best picture in a second about like stylistically and the violence of movies and like how french connection set up the and paved the way for other movies but like let's say Norman Jewison won. Let's just say he won for Fiddler on the Roof. Like, I wonder if the landscape of films would look different. I mean, even Peter Bogdanovich for The Last Picture Show, that movie is so well-crafted. And, like, I feel like when I watched that movie, like, that movie was, like, like a... Again, I, I said Link later, I think, to you on the side. But it does... It did remind me of Boyhood in some aspects of it. So, I, and I wonder, just, like... Man, like, should, does Freakin, Freakin deserves this? Like, it... Not that he doesn't deserve it. Do the other ones deserve it more? Like, especially like a guy like Kubrick, who I feel like we can study like him as just like its own masterclass. Just like just watch those movies over and over again. You'll learn how to direct properly. So, I don't know, what are your thoughts? Well, one, we that? just got such an insider look into the process making this film because of that Academy interview. So, obviously, thanks to them, Chris McQuarrie did a great job, kind of asking really interesting and compelling questions. But also, we just got this director who's so open he's honest he seems to be so willing to discuss 
his process, discuss what it was like, but also admit his faults. Like we talked about early on, he was kind of insane when it came to his directing style, the way he pushed his crew members, the way he pushed his actors in order to get these performances. But at the end of the day, look at what he did. He created such a lived in real world that it it felt worth it at the end of the day. I, I loved in his interview where he talked about, you know, we only had one permit. It was the Metro and we did all these crazy things. And looking back on it, like he described how he would never do this again. He would never make a film in this way. But in a, in a sense, that's what makes the French connection so wonderful. It's like this weird specific moment in time that has still remained timeless. It's worked out in a way where you can watch this film and it still feels like the beats that we are used to for cop dramas and detective thrillers. And it's because he's kind of helped define what that is in the French connection. And he's combined so many different styles that he's helped usher in and establish what we know as like 70s auteur cinema it's amazing it's really incredible but really it just comes down to how much i love how open he is how there's so many incredible interviews and i think the more we go now and worthy the more we're going to get more in depth because we just have more access to the documentation we have more access to the interviews the people are going to be still alive you know the, the interview that he held was only back in 2016 where you know Friedkin looked like in good health he looked like he he's doing pretty well he looked like he can even go out and direct another film if he wanted so what an amazing director that I've kind of like unlocked and discovered I, I've seen the exorcist obviously and I, I love some of his other films, but it really made me kind of inspired to go and, and kind of pursue and watch every film that he's ever made. And finally, Best Picture nominees are Nicholas and Alexandra, The Last Picture Show, Fiddler on the Roof, A Clockwork Orange, and our winner of the Best Picture Award of 1971, The French Connection. John, before we get into if it's worthy, if it's not worthy, let me just give some stats and figures to kind of see what everyone else thinks. So the French Connection has a 98% on Rotten Tomatoes with an average rating of 8.75. The top critic percentage is a 92 with the average rating of a 9.4. Audience score is an 87 with an average, and this is out of 5, 4.09. IMDb has it as a 7.7. Metacritic has it as a 94 which is the highest we've had since My Fair Lady, which was a 95. So take that for what it will, will you, for what you will for that. And the movie won a total of five Oscars out of eight nominations. John, what did you give The French Connection? I gave The French Connection an 84, which, you know, we just gushed. We've talked a lot about this movie. That sounds like it would be too low but to me i i kind of hinted and we talked about the ending it felt a little hollow to me i wish there's a little bit more but an 84 is still a great film to me it's it's a good film you know anything around there we have west side story from 1961 which i rated an 82 let's see american paris is an 80 so both of those are lower than how i feel about the french connection and then anything a little bit higher we have maybe like casablanca which is an 88 so i still regard the french connection as a, as a great film it's just missing a little more of the elements i wish we got a little more of the relationship between these two detectives we went a little bit deeper i understand that's kind of the it's the essence of this movie is the obsession the drive to keep kind of pursuing these criminals but at the same time 
that's always going to have like a hand. It's going to have a level of distance that it puts the viewer where you won't be able to kind of fully dive deep into these characters but you get to see a very interesting realistic depiction of this world and new york city at the time and the crime world so i absolutely adored the film but ben what did you give the french connection i gave the french connection in 85 so again yeah it's like what we just gushed about this this is a long ass podcast how come <laughs> i listened to this for so long and you're only giving this movie in, in 85 i think this movie has a lot of strong aspects to it i think the points I'm taking it off of, and I feel like the ending is, I don't love the ending. I think they could have cleaned it up better. I do agree that the whole relationship between, you know, between Popeye and Buddy Russo, like that could have been, there were more to that. There could have been more to those, but it really is just about the chase, which I think is fine. And, and people love those kinds of movies. Like that is definitely a valid movie to love. And, but that doesn't mean that it's like, the best thing that it's ever made. And I, so I saved this quote for the end to talk about the rating. And, and I, it's a very fair criticism, I think of the movie and it's not, I'll just read it. For, so it's from Pauline Kael, the New Yorker, you know, she was negative about it. And she wrote, it's not what I want. It's not what I want, not because it fails. And she put in parentheses, it doesn't fail, but because of what it is, it is, I think what we once feared mass entertainment might become jolts for jocks there's nothing in the movie that you enjoy thinking about afterward nothing especially clever except the timing of the subway door and umbrella sequence every other effect of the movie even the the climactic car versus runaway elevated train chase is achieved by noise speed and brutality now i'm not saying like all of that is right but she makes some really great points i don't think this movie though is jolts for jocks but I do think this movie achieves its success based off noise, speed, and brutality. And that's what makes it a fun movie, engaging. There's a lot of pow and action and and this and that. But then does that mean that I now have to give it such high scores? Maybe it just isn't necessarily for me. And I thought maybe the other aspects to it, what it lacked and what could have made it better if it wasn't so just like, bam, pow, let, you know, let's do this running gun type of shooting. Let's shoot this car sequence without you know actual permits in the city let's just like run and gun and, and kind of do it on our own that's all great and that's fun and that and the spirit of that filmmaking i think is a lot of fun but i guess maybe it didn't hit the the lengths of what you suppose but then also the scores what i also gave to west side story of ben-hur which are huge epics that i thought hit on so many different aspects but just didn't have that extra umph that brings it to some higher successes you know comparatively to it so it's it's weird scores it's interesting that we both came to that score and we didn't really talk about that beforehand so i and just how it is sometimes we do think on the same wavelengths but your average rating right now through 44 movies is a 74.0 and i'm at a 76.6 so still in that 70s range I think to some awful movies beforehand, not The French Connection, though. So, John, let me ask you that question. Is The French Connection worthy of the Best Picture Award of 1971? Yes. Yes, I, I do. And it's a mixture of things. I think it's an amazing film for the time. It's so inventive and it explores such a new way of of kind of integrating these different genres and styles of filmmaking into creating something that is still very cohesive and feels so 
intense. You know, I definitely think this is one of the most intense, if not most visceral, Best Picture winners we've seen yet. And I love that you brought in that quote from the critic because it is it is true to a sense. I don't believe it's as in you know as offensive as as it was to her. I think to me that sounds like an American criti- critic who's just not quite ready to handle new French New Wave cinema and wants you know maybe the old classic Hollywood to kind of remain the way it, the way it was. But that is what makes this film also so incredible is that they were able to make something and everything is cinema. And when you look at something like that, it's inspiring to see these group of filmmakers, especially this young guy who didn't have too much under his belt, go out of his way and craft something with this much energy. You know, sometimes you make a film and maybe the story doesn't always hit. There's like some issues of the screenplay, but you can just feel the energy you know you can feel the passion behind the camera you can feel the thrust and the constant push to be like we have to make this we have to make every single shot as interesting and compelling and just keep pushing and pushing and I get that I feel that from this movie 100 percent I think that carries it a long way and it carries it past those flaws because of that level of, of visceral filmmaking that we get out of this that intensity so absolutely I do think it's worthy but Ben do you agree? Do you disagree? I think it's worthy. I think it's worthy, and I think that this is just another one of those really strong years where a lot of films are worthy. Now, I always preface this by saying a bit of what I voted for. I don't know, but let me just say a few positives about The French Connection. It That thrill, the, the chase, the I'm going to do whatever it takes to figure this out and accomplish this is why I love the movie. I think it has... That, that thriller tenacity to it that is so so much fun. And it's fun to sit in a theater and watch it. I'm so happy I got the chance to see this movie in the theater, to have that experience, to see it on a bigger screen, to not just watch it on my TV, my laptop, my iPad, whatever. Because it, it gave a, a bigger and grander experience I think it deserves, and that, mo- that pretty much all movies deserve. It's a lot of fun. I think Hackman's character is great. He, he commands the scenes, the the. Again, the cat and mouse aspect, the Tom and Jerry aspect of this movie it, is why it's so much fun. It's, it's so compelling. The car chase sequences keeps you on the edge of your seat. Your heart is constantly pacing. And, and just the behind-the-scenes aspect is a lot of fun. There's a lot of, there's a lot of fun that, uh, and, a, and a lot of insight that I got from researching this movie, from seeing where it was filmed in, in the area that I live in, to hear Friedkin's words. It, it was very inspirational and very... You know, like, okay, like, I see the art, and that's why the whole cold open and us talking about the edit, it seeing like it's taken out, is so disheartening because of the effort they got put in this movie. It's like, why would you take this out when there's so much effort, there's so much praise that this movie then got? Like, it, it's very undeserved to be, to have that edit to it. Now, what, what would I vote for? I mean, I'm, I love all the nominees, and it, it's gonna now going to come out of left field. I was so praising of A Clockwork Orange and Filler on the Roof, I think I would have picked The Last Picture Show to win Best Picture for this year. To me, that screams best. (laughs) I know you think that it's insane, and I'm glad that you think it's insane. I've always held just a conviction and a feeling that a movie like that, the movie that I think that directly, I know I mentioned Boyhood, but a more, I must say more modern, when Boyhood is modern, it's just almost 10 years old, which makes me feel old in of itself there, uh, the movie I think that it's very similar to is The Fablemans. I think The Fablemans and Last Picture Show, show share some very similar threads. It's not an exact story. It's different places in the world, but there's something there 
that I think Spielberg might have been trying to tap into that might have taken some inspiration from. Maybe I'm just, that's just how I see it, but I really love that movie. I really love the style. I think that it would have been really interesting to see a movie that was based off old 50s movies, essentially, but what had like modern takes, modern storylines, went out there with what I was trying to talk about and, and show. It would have been really interesting for its time, but then, as I've also proposed in theory that the French Connection might have paved the way for the next movie we're going to talk about, The Godfather, in our next episode. Paved the way for that and its sequel, Part 2, to win Best Picture because those are gritty films. If a movie like Best, at, like The Last Picture Show had won, I don't know. Maybe it would have been different. Maybe there wouldn't have been the precedent that was set. That's me just thinking and pontificating and what I would have done. But I, I do not want to take anything away from The French Connection because I still think that was worthy of winning its award. So... I loved it. The, I'm really happy in this discussion. I, I think sometimes I go into these episodes, John, and I'm always like, what am I going to say? <laughs> like, what am I, like, cause sometimes it, it is very off the cuff. It's reactionary to what you're saying. We're both looking at the same info, how are we both taking it in. And I had a lot of fun. And then again, the other movies we have to talk about, I think really helped it. So any final thoughts on the French connection, the 44th Academy Awards, the year of 1971, it has been a great episode. I can't believe that it's been as long as, as we've talked. I mean, cause, and I feel like I still have gas in the tank. I feel like there's more to talk about, which is so interesting because the, I think the behind the scenes was just as fascinating as the actual product that was made. And I think that's kind of how we got into this point. Plus, you know, we have the special element of the fact that we got to see this together. I mean, we haven't we haven't watched the film together that we've done this podcast for in such a long time. In fact, I, I've scrolled back and I'm like, I don't really remember even honestly what was the last thing that we've watched specifically together. So now here we are. Not only did we get to watch it together, we got to go to a theater and we got to go to New York City, like a beautiful theater called the Film Forum in Manhattan. And we got to watch this together in a sold out theater. It was jam packed. And I don't think you can get that kind of experience very often, and especially in the city, the same location that the film takes place, and have it be as bombastic of a crowd. You know, the car chase scene, people were like doing oohs and ahs and like having jumping, jumping up in their seat. Like it was a really great experience, and I definitely will never forget it. And this is special. I think this is like this weird marker for me because I remember when you, I first looked at this crackhead Excel sheet that you've made of all of our, we call it the best picture list. And <laughs> it's insane. If you look at it, it's like a madman. It's, it's so well organized, but it has so much information on it. And I remember looking at the whole list of movies because it was really easy to simply see them all listed here. And I remember looking and being like, man, it's not going to be until 1972 where The Godfather, where it'll be way more coherent for me. Because I just feel like at our age, that's as far back as I've really gotten myself looking into cinema, looking into film history. Before, obviously, I got into college and, and saw a lot of older films. But this is really amazing. I can't believe we've gotten to this point and we're moving forward now to such a more familiar kind of areas of film not not only just like the years but just films that i've seen maybe before so it's gonna start to change the way this like podcast will go and i i can't wait buddy it's been a great time yeah i i can't wait either i agree it's it's super weird you know to look back and because i remember too when i first looked at the list i'm like okay there's the godfather oh and there's all this before the godfather <laughs> there's a lot of movies 
but it's a very rewarding, I think, experience and journey. And I'm glad that we're doing this together. And I'm glad that you're right. We got to see this French connection together. And I'm very excited to talk about The Godfather with you, which who knows? I mean, me, do we do we aim for another two-parter, John? I'm going to put it right on you. <laughs> you looked so scared when I just said two-parter. Because then right it's like, there. damn, you got to do a two-parter for the second as well. I mean, oof. But I'm down. I'm down. I'm oh, also yeah, down yeah. for a, a meaty episode <laughs> because it is The Godfather. It's a meaty film. A horse meaty episode. <laughs> Anyways, let's... I feel like we should end. We always, you know, whenever it's a musical, you know, I'd love to sing some Fiddler on the Roof with you right now, but I feel like, I feel like we no, should take, use some French connection line. Take, what, what? no, no, take it away. I'm John. And I'm Ben. And this is worthy. And this is worthy. Tradition. Tradition. Tradition, of course. Tradition. Tradition. Now, the best is if I was a rich man, find me a man. Match me on a match. Matchmaker, matchmaker, make me a match. All right, shut up. Damn it. Shut up! Anybody want a milkshake? Thanks for listening to Worthy, the breakdown of every Best Picture winner from past to present. Listen to us wherever you get your podcasts. Check us out on Instagram at Worthy Podcast, on Twitter at Worthy Pod, and on Facebook at Worthy Podcast. Any inquiries can be submitted to worthysubmissions at gmail.com. That's worthysubmissions at gmail.com.